This is a special episode of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. This is the audio from round five of the Instructor's Roundtable on critical incident response teams. Here you go. All right, welcome back to Tactical Breakdown. If you are new to us, welcome. Thank you for being here. This is a special episode. Again, we've pulled the audio from one of our roundtables, our IRTs. This one was from June on critical incident response teams. If you don't already know about the Instructor's Roundtable, we run a live panel discussion on any given law enforcement topic on the last Thursday of each and every month at 8 p.m. Central Time. And you can check that out at thebreakdown.ca forward slash IRT. Don't miss July's episode on leadership development. It's going to be one for the books. I have four amazing instructors for you today, and I'm excited to just let loose on this uh, conversation that we had. But before we do that, I want to let everybody know about the International Law Enforcement Training Summit. The ILET Summit is taking place July 27th through 31st and is completely online. Here's the best part. It's free. I am honored to bring together over 45 of the top instructors in the world. We have instructors from five countries, and there's going to be over 20,000 officers from around the world attending the summit. So make sure to check that out. You can go to iletsummit.com, or you can just click the link in the show notes page. If you are in law enforcement and you are interested in free training, please just check it out. Like I said, it's a free resource, and I'm honored to be able to put that out there for you. So make sure to do that. All right, let's jump into this episode. Again, this is the audio we pulled from round five of the Instructor's Roundtable on Critical Incident Response Teams. Let's jump in. Let's talk about Critical Incident Response Teams. One of the big things that all four of you had mentioned before we really kicked this off was that we should be taking a pretty hard look at smaller agencies and how they run their critical incident response teams because not everybody has the training and resources of, you know, the FBI HRT teams, the LAPDs. And so where where should we start that conversation? Does anybody have an idea as where we should start when we talk small agency? Because um, we'll work our way up the up the chain. But when we start small agency, maybe, Dan, I'll leave it to you. I mean, what's the biggest thing that you're noticing with your agency right now that's um, that people should be focused on? Well, I think the hard part for a small agency, and we were talking about this uh, before the show started, is that, uh, you know, we all struggle with training time. We, we struggle with, um, you know, everything's a collateral duty. So there's multiple issues that come into some of the bigger teams. And, and forgive me, I was never on a bigger team, but I've trained with a lot of them, um, uh, is that, you know, it, you have to kind of cross train there's a, within your training time you need to identify what, what your priorities are what are you going to train uh, although I, I, I've seen in other things where you know repelling is really cool but it doesn't necessarily have a place in a small team if you're never going to repel so you need to really prioritize what your missions are that you're going to face and then use that precious training time uh, wisely but then the other challenge that comes with training time is you really have to cross train everybody because these are all collateral duty assignments. Everybody else has a day job and people go on vacation and we can't hold 
sometimes these schedules. And so you can get a call out and really never know who's going to show up. So if you've got two guys that are your excellent scouts and they can scout like great, but you haven't cross trained the whole team to do a scout plan. Well, if those two guys, one guy's injured, one guy's out, you're in trouble. Um, the other thing is just resources. Um, in my county right now, you know, we're, we're a county of about uh, 280,000. Uh, there's there's six different jurisdictions within my county, uh, really only two functioning uh, crisis response teams or SWAT teams. Uh, my agency is the only agency that has armor. So, um, you know, I've gone to other agency trainings where you look at a vehicle containment issue or something like that. And and they're talking about three armored vehicles to really lock this thing in. You know, that's that's non-existent uh, to us. We 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 would call in for help, but that's uh, you know that's a little bit of uh, ways away coming from other Bay Area uh, agencies. So those those are the challenges. Is just that training time, making sure you're cross training, making sure that you've identified the training that needs to be done. Um, and then what resources and tools do you have? And I think every agency is on, on strict budgets, but the smaller the agency, um, you know, the, the more tight the funding is for programs like this. Um, and so, so I'd say those are, are some of the bigger issues. And then just like we talked uh, or we can talk about, you know, a lot of time when we go out as a smaller agency, you do go out to some of the larger agencies that host the training and it's very valuable. Um, I think uh, team leaders and commanders of these smaller teams need to really assess the training that they're going and find out, is it a work? Is it a fit for your team and for the missions that you're going to face? Um, because there's some great things out there, but if you don't have the equipment or the resource to pull that off, um, maybe that's that's a great technique. It's just misapplied for the wrong situation. That was actually part of the discussion that you and I had um, prior to this was that, you know, we have these smaller agencies um, and training time's limited across the board. I mean, shit, look at us now. No one's doing any training. Um, but when you have these smaller teams, smaller budgets, I mean, everybody wants to be part of the team because you get the high speed kit, you get to do the high speed training. Is that something that we really have to start taking a hard look at and saying, listen, I know you want to learn how to do all the stuff that you see the tier one operators do because it looks cool. But the, the reality is, is that in your limited training time, there's no way that you're going to become proficient enough to act on those types of skills as opposed to people that are doing it day in and day out and training all the time. Um, who wants to maybe jump in on that one? Yeah, I'd love to jump on that one if I could, Adam. Um, I, I saw it all the time in the FBI when a, a team would go train with a, a tier one unit and then they'd come back and they'd start running like a high port, high port with an M4 uh, and the bureau standard was low ready. And the question was, why, why are you running high port? And then the answer was, well, the SEALs run high port, and we thought that was, you know, cool. Um, well, they don't train like the SEALs. They don't work out like the SEALs. They have collateral duties like working cases. Uh, and so we would try to make them focus back on, you know, what they their capabilities are and don't chase the shiny thing. As I was listening to Dan talk about these small departments, you know, I mean, do you have to have a team? And if you do, then focus on the basics, you know, keep – really, really perfect the basics. How do you enter the first room, dominate it and calm down? Um, there's a lot of cool stuff out there, but again, I would tell people don't get sucked into that. 
because the, you know, the basics of competence and courage and r- really understanding what you're doing never go out of fashion. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. No, the entire concept, right, of high speed, low drag, really what we're talking about, it's mastery of the basics, being able to perform the basics faster than your adversary. Um, and, and so many people, well, that, you know, the basics, that's boring. No, it's your foundation. You have to come back to it. Um, and it, it's not like, okay, well, I'm good. I don't need to practice that anymore. No, you need to keep practicing it. They're, the skills are perishable. Um, you know, do you have enough training time to even maintain them where they need to be? Uh, you can look at like NTOA standards, right? Uh, full-time teams are talking 40 hours a month. Uh, part-time teams, uh, level two, 16 hours a month, um, you know, with the collateral responsibilities that everybody has, can an agency give that training time to maintain those basics and how many of them, um, it, you know, it's like, I'm going to run my, my rifle, I'm going to run my handgun. I'm going to have to be able to breach. Uh, you know, I have to deal with how to run a shield. I have to, all these other aspects, but do you have enough training time to really maintain them? Um, and, and if you think that an agency, a smaller or mid-level agency is always going to give you all the training time and all the money to do it, it's not going to happen. Most people will go out on their own to obtain more training. They'll go out on their own to enhance their skills on their own, um, on their own dime and on their own time, uh, because they are dedicated to their craft. And they realize they don't get enough training time typically to maintain what they need to. And, and that's, that's the other part with, with almost any agency, but definitely your mid to small, small agencies. They just don't have the time. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's the reality. I like, I like the uh, point that uh, you brought up, James, that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a tactics guy. I love tactics, and it's what I focus on. And one thing that you see a lot of is a really big mixed bag of what everybody does without any real um, thought process or purpose behind it. Everybody just adopts different things because, well, that team's doing it. These guys are doing it. They went overseas and came back, and we're doing it there, so we're going to do it here. Um, I think that the the uh, platform of unity of um, you know what everybody should be doing, driven by actual purpose, is one of the things that um, needs to kind of be honed in on a little bit more as well in uh, in the tactical world. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're you know, say that's along those same lines, right? Everybody gets so focused on the technique, but they don't understand the concept behind the technique. Technique tends to be very narrow in scope as far as when it can be used. But if you understand the concepts behind it, the application, then you can widen the application. You widen when you're going to use it. Um, you know, the, the, there's a famous quote. It says, tactics, not a matter of going left or right. Tactics are about the, the, you know, the point of why we go left or why we go right. Um, and when you see people borrow uh, attack technique from somebody, Hey, we saw so-and-so do this. We saw so-and-so do this, but do you understand the whys? You know, when you're talking about high port positions, I was doing some trainings, uh, force on force training and the group that I was working with at the time, um, they run everything from a high ready or high port position. And specifically because they are having to deal with, uh, entry points in ships where the bottom floor is raised up and so they can seal the bulkheads off. And if there's a water you know, breach of any type, and then there's a low ceiling. So for them to run, try to run the muzzle down the entire time doesn't work 
because they're having to lead a specific way. And if they lead with the muzzle down, they'll never be able to get the muzzle up if they have to engage. So for them, being able to have that muzzle up and take position or take shots in uncomfortable, odd, very weird, weird positions has a purpose. That's the concept. They, that makes sense for their environment. But in other environments, does that tactic, that, that technique really make sense? And if you don't understand the principles behind it, you can't really evaluate it. They just see that 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 shiny object and oh, I'm going to go grab to that because ABC, XYZ, Alphabet Soup, whoever group does it and we're going to do it too. But it's not the same environment. It's not the same training time. It's not the same purpose. You've got to take and evaluate all of that and decide, is that right for my team? Is that right for my situation? Before you just throw that into the mix. You know, it seems that that question of or the topic of why comes up uh, and Adam on all these uh, instructors roundtables, it seems that we're always talking, when we're talking training or we're talking tactics, we're talking the why. And um, it's, it's so true that it's not only important that you, you understand the why that you do, uh, you know, if you're doing some CQB techniques or room clears or something like that, while there's only a few ways you can get down a hall and through a door, they each, they each have different um, advantages and benefits. And, um, and you need to understand, like, how how does that or how we move or how we handle a given problem? How does that um, what's the why? What's the reasoning behind there? What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? And how is that going to help us with the makeup of our team? Or in, And then understanding why actually helps other members. Um, and we can go on go on a little bit. You know, you can also use the why in training to, to kind of really discern whether or not uh, learning has occurred. What I mean by that is, you know, as you're going through, you're doing live scenario training and, and people are going through the motions of, of the tactic or the movement or whatever, you know, uh, it's very easy if somebody makes a mistake just to go, uh, hey, you made a mistake and this is what you should have done to fix it. Where a lot of times I think we miss out on asking like, hey, when this happened, you did this. I just want to know why you did that. And then having them and then hopefully through that, uh, that conversation, you can help them develop you know what, I probably should have zigged when I should have zagged or, or whatever. And then they understand the why. And then that helps that confirm that learning. And one other point that was made on these whys or is I really think uh, small teams, any team really is you have to have heads up people that can discern that the mission that's set before your team is your team up to it. And it's very hard. I, I've seen it over my career where, Ego can get in the way and we're like, well, we're the SWAT team. We get called out. We have to act to this. And I'm not saying you you advocate. Maybe you form perimeter and you try to lock it down. But you also have to look at the reality of what is the current state of your team? Did you just have a massive turnover and now half your team is brand new people that barely understand any of these tactics? You've, you've really got to discern like, hey, are we ready to take on this mission? Sometimes you don't have to. But in our case, you know, we may have to call in uh, an assistance from another team if we're not uh, go time or um, which happened in the case in my career, if you have heaven forbid uh, officers get killed and your team's emotionally compromised, well, do you want them going off that mission right there at that time? And that that's really, that that's where the strategy and the thinking game is so critical. And, uh, and sometimes I think we get too much into kind of this route. This is how we do it. This is, this is what we're going to do the next time. And we don't have a clear understanding of the why um, and we don't have that real 
true understanding of what are the capabilities of my team as it sits today, not what it was 12 years ago, not what it was 10 years ago. Where do they sit today? Yeah, Dan, Dan, Dan nailed the, the key word. It was all that was all great, by the way. The key word was ego. Dan nailed it. You know, we've we've all seen the ego. and We've also been blessed by seeing a lot of people with a lot of humility. And, 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 you know, my, my experiences, I've always tried to focus on the uh, professionals that I dealt with who had a high degree of humility. And, and oftentimes as an FBI SWAT guy, you know, we'd have HRT come from Quantico because what we're getting ready to do was probably beyond our capabilities. And, and, and man, I never felt bad about calling those guys because they're the best, uh, at least from my world, they were the best. And, but that, you know, that takes a high degree of humility and if we had more of that and less of the other, I think we'd, we'd be better off as a community. Thank you. Thanks for that, Dan. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll throw in uh, another point here that's kind of fascinating is the why is, is, is definitely the big variable here. But there's another point that um, really intrigues me, which is the history of um, you know, a particular tactical, I'll, I'll, I'll call it, um, where something came from, what necessitated the birth of, uh, of this particular tactic, and why is it here today? And that's something that, you know, between the, the uh, foundational history of a tactic and why it's applied, sometimes they're on a parallel track, sometimes they kind of deviate from one another. But I'll give you guys an example. And I think a lot of people that are probably tuning in here are going to uh, find this fascinating. Um uh, so, you know, one of the biggest things that we do in the tactical world are room entries. That's kind of the, the, the pinnacle of everything is transitioning from a hallway into uh, a room. And you got to pass this threshold. You got to pass this uh, this doorway. And there's a lot of work on how you move through a hallway, what you do in a hallway, and then what you do inside the room. <clears throat> but there's never been really much um, uh, focus on that transition point, which is that threshold. So many people who are familiar with the Israeli tactics, I'll, uh, I'll reference it as, understand that we have this thing called what's been uh, uh, coined, and ironically here in North America, as limited penetration, that uh, we don't rush into, into a room. There's some variables on that for the different type of, uh, of uh, mission profiles that we, uh, that we do. But in essence, when we're doing a room takeover, um, our philosophy is to not enter that room until we've been able to a clear it um, uh, visually from the uh, from the um, uh, threshold, or b take out any threats in that room before we have to enter, exposing ourselves to a 360 degree environment. Um, and the thing is, people don't really get. There's a lot of this these this arguments that I see going back and forth on you know which tactic is better. Should you you know fight from the threshold, do this limb pen thing, or rush into the room? Both, if you take them separately, standalone, you can find pros and cons for each one. But if you look at the history behind why we do what we do, it kind of puts a different perspective on things. And um, it opens up your mind to the concept of first really identify why something was created. So, you know, we were given our homeland back in, uh, in 1948. We had wars from day one up until about the um, 70s. We... Uh, experience for the most part um, conventional wars. All of our beautiful neighboring uh, countries that don't want us to exist would attack us on all fronts at all times. And then 
1974, we had this pinnacle turn of event with a uh, specific attack that occurred in the north at a high school. These three terrorists came in through the northern front. Um, they uh, 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 passed through a couple uh, villages through the border, entered homes, uh, killed uh, Israeli civilians, um, finally made their way to the school, took the school uh, captive. Uh, several hundred um, uh, hostages, uh, students and, and teachers, and these three um, terrorists inside. So by this time, uh, Israel had a tremendous amount of war experience. We had defended our borders in our country um, against attacks from all fronts successfully, no problem. But now this was a whole different event. This was now, you know, a, a tactical counterterrorism um, uh, scenario that required an entirely different approach. And uh, so two of our top military units responded. Um, terrorists started to uh, execute hostages. They went in, the two units. It wasn't the biggest success. There were casualties on all fronts. Three terrorists were dead. Uh, some of the hostages were killed. We had some uh, some soldiers that were killed. And that's what gave birth to our uh, national counterterrorism mandate, where we now realize that we have a new wave of threats that are um, attacking us, I should say, in a new, a new paradigm in which we're being attacked. Um, so... By this point in time, we, our knowledge base came from the British. They're the ones that formed our military. Going into the early 80s, um, we turned to the U.S. We turned specifically to Delta. So one of our top units, it's our equivalent of, uh, of the British SAS or the U.S. Uh, Delta, um, they got together with the U.S. Delta, and they wanted to explore what everybody is doing for room entries because this is what it really all boils down to in a tactical world. Rarely do you ever you know, go chasing somebody in open field. A lot of times everything culminates, either begins or it culminates in a barricaded situation. Where either you don't have uh, innocence in there or you've got threats and innocence and you now have to find a successful way to, to penetrate, dominate, and uh, surgically take the threats out. So at this time, the preferred method um, that, uh, that our guys picked up from Delta was the concept of flooding the room as quickly as you can. Four guys uh, into the four corners of the room as fast as you possibly can. All four come in. Two go deep corners, two go to the close corners, and now you've got 360-degree uh, uh, coverage and, you know, dominance over that room. Theoretically, that makes sense. So we adopted that. <clears throat> Going into the 80s, this is where we now started to see um, our, you know, most violent um, uh, localized conflicts going on. And it was entries after entries, day and night, going into um, uh, arrest terrorists and uh, take out, uh, you know, uh, weapons manufacturing um, uh, caches and stuff like that. And the problem that we had was we had this um, tactic that made sense completely on a, a theoretical perspective. And definitely by experience, you know, uh, backed as far as what I guess, you know, the U.S. and any other countries have been able to, um, uh, to, to garner with applying this tactic in their environments. But in our environments, the norm with us is that when we breach a door, our saying is that if that room doesn't blow up or we don't take gunfire coming in from, uh, from a fridge or a stove, something is not right. And we had we mastered the tactics of going in and, and flooding four corners but it never worked, never happened, period, because our paradigm that we faced is the second that door opens and you've got the, uh, the visuals of that first um, operator in the doorway, rounds are flying through the doorway. And what factually happens is that no human is going to go running through rounds, especially when it's an environment that you can't necessarily identify 
where the rounds are coming from and be in control of being able to effectively respond. Everybody stops on that doorway and sucks back to uh, behind the, uh, the threshold for the natural perception of, uh, of cover. So it wasn't working. And so we decided, okay, however, theoretically, this tactic makes sense. You have to dominate the room. That's the only way that, you know, the end result is achieved. So we kind of modified the tactic. Instead of four corners domination, just fight as hard as you can to get one and two to take the, the first two corners and the rest will just kind of flood in in a, in a line. But even at that, when, um, uh, when um, the, our guys were in the field, and they were going up against the norm for us, which is that door opens and you've got seven, six, two rounds flying at you. Nobody is going to any corner because you can't physically get to a corner. By the time you take two steps into that room, you've already taken enough bullets. Number two has already taken enough rounds and it changes your thinking, your whole plan. There's no plan at that point because you don't know what's going on, where the rounds are coming from. And when I say, you know, um, rounds coming from a fridge, that's not joke that's what we, we face they would um prepare their uh their uh, their appliances in the house expecting anticipating that one day we're going to come kicking through the doors to arrest them so they clear out all these shelves they got food sitting at the bottom they'll have a hole drilled out in the door big enough for the muzzle of an ak-47 to fit through another hole side by side that they can look through and they sit there in the dark with that muzzle protruding through the um uh, the fridge door and when enough of our guys are in they open fire and you know i'll tell you it takes uh it takes quite a while to identify that a fridge is shooting at you. Um, so that is where we decided to go with the flow of not fighting um, instincts. You can't go in through a doorway when rounds are flying at you. So stay on the doorway. That's what everybody does naturally. And if you hone the natural instincts, you now are able to effectively operate and, and dominate. So then the second question that comes up is, you know, this whole concept of the fatal funnel. The fatal funnel all depends on who's in the driver's seat. If we're allowing rounds to come at us, then we're in the fight, fatal funnel. But if we are on that threshold and we are dominating, controlling that threshold and we're sending rounds in, that threat inside this 360 degree environment is in our fatal funnel. It's not a concern to us. And our um, capability uh, and success level of being able to safely get operators to now uh, dominate rooms, take over, you know, clear buildings. Um, injury-free, uh, uh, drastically, drastically um, uh, uh, changed. And so the historical piece is something that is really generally the first place that just myself, um, I'm always fascinated by when I see, you know, whether it's on YouTube or I go on a course and, and I see different things going on, I always want to find out where did that come from first? And then how does this play into why are you using it? And does it actually fit? Is it congruent with your actual operational environment, the threats that you're facing, um, the objectives that you're trying to uh, to achieve? That was awesome. That, that was incredible history. Thank you for that. Because you know, we, we've done threshold assessment and, and limited penetration. And, and that was the first time I've heard the history. So thank you so much for that. That, that, that was uh, very good for me as well. Um, a couple of the points that I just want to talk about, you know, when you talk um, just recently, what happened to my team, I've been off the team for a little bit, but it's still under my oversight. But I, uh, I'm sure we can all talk to stories about this. You know, you send some people off to school and they come back with uh, a, a kind of a new way of moving. And, and again, you know, there's only so many ways you can get down a hall through doors or whatever. Um, 
but they wanted to kind of change this new way because they said, hey, we just feel like it flows better. Uh, and and they don't we don't do dynamic. We do very deliberate. But they just said. And so the only question I asked them is I want to know, like, OK, do you understand um, near just like you were talking about? Do you understand what the purpose is behind this? And, and like you're saying, the history behind it, the the reasoning for a threshold ass- assessment and, and then, uh, you know, <coughs> a limited uh, type of primitive. Uh, penetration and dominance. Um, so that was one question. Like, so if you're going to do whatever you're going to do and you change it up, do you realize what you're giving up? You're giving up, um, you know, if, if the fight happens right at that threshold, I agree with you. No one's going to, it's against natural instinct. And when we do this under force on force simulation, it goes against natural instinct to continue to press through the door when live rounds are coming through that or through the wall or whatever. So, um, and then the other, you know, so, so then, that's hard that we know that that's physically going to be very challenging. And then if we have an officer go down, do we want to have them deep in the room or do we want them closer to the threshold where we can just grab and pull and, and do an officer rescue? So those are just the questions that I wanted to say, like, Hey, if you guys are going to change, then do you understand that this is what you're potentially giving up and how are you going to address those? Um, and then the, the, the interesting thing is then the second part of this is not just, you know, we talk about good tactics applied misappropriately or uh, I don't want to talk about movement speeds, but there are speeds right in, in any tactical environment. Sometimes you do have to move dynamically if it's more hostage rescue. Sometimes you're doing a deliberate clear, you know, and sometimes you're doing a really stealth clear of a building. And, and especially for small teams, you know, if you have three different styles of movement for all three of those tactics, um, Operationally, I think you're going to be very challenged because you're not going to have the time to train each call it movement style or whatever for each style of speed or if we're going to call it that uh, and then try to apply it in the real life world. And so, um, you know, you really kind of have to think like, okay, for our missions that we're facing and for how our team can move and the equipment that we have and what's our normal working environment, uh, do we understand the why of the tactic? Does it fit for what we're going to be faced and how we're going to do that? Um, and can it cross across uh, a threshold of different assignments? You know, uh, if all of a sudden we're on a warrant search and it turns into a barricade and then we've got to do some sort of stealth movement uh, using equipment and all that other stuff, can it all apply? Can we make that work together? And and some teams, uh, I know that's been a challenge with, with the history of my team of, of trying to make that adjustment. And so, um, you know, really looking at those missions and looking at what your team's capable of and what those tactics or styles that you're using really got to figure out what is that, what's driving your training, what's driving that. And, um, and, and I think that's an, an important that uh, question that teams and team leaders and commanders and other operators on the team need to be asking themselves. Dan, you hit, uh, you hit some really awesome points there. And one of them I want to touch up on is um, uh, you talked about pressing through the doorway, you know, even if you're, if you're, if you're hitting your shot. And one of the other, um, you know, things that we got to look at here is how much we're potentially setting ourselves up for failure with, uh, with false notion uh, training, trying to reach an objective 
that we give ourselves in training the end result, but we are completely oblivious to the process of how we've achieved that end result just to make sure that everything kind of looks like it works from start to finish. And specifically, you know, um, as I know everybody here is familiar with, you know, you look at the uh, the advent of uh, use of force training. And when sims and, and marking rounds came into the, uh, to the equation, which are a phenomenal tool, but I think to a huge part, they've been kind of, you know, pardon my Hebrew, they've been kind of bastardized and, and create a lot of uh, um, a lot of false senses of security, right? So as we know, well, if we're doing a use of force scenario, and if we take, you know, our field of, of, uh, of tactical operations, we're in a room entry, and uh, we blast through that door, and we got the bad guy in there, the role player, and he starts pelting us with the, uh, the rounds, the one thing that we are conditioned to do and that we're trained is um, – you press on, you fight, you don't stop. Don't let those rounds affect you. You can't, you know, you can't fail. You got to be Superman up here and you got to keep going. But the problem is that in real life, if that was a real scenario, unfortunately, there's only so far that our mind will be able to carry us uh, until it reaches a wall of that bullet making the decision as to whether or not we are able to play Superman, keep on going through. I think that, um, more than enough times, we just kind of get sucked into, you know, um, racing through doing what needs to be done as far as training and not looking and first asking before you switched on that last ditch effort of, you know, your your mind telling you you're not stopping because you've been hit. <laughs> let reverse and look at why we got hit to begin with. Is there something that we can, you know, fix to make sure that you don't have to go into mental Superman mode while you're full of lead? and you know, not get shot in real life. Um, and so I think that that's something that from uh, the, the training world that I've unfortunately experienced and observed all too often, it's just not there. Um, we just rush to, this is what we do. This is how we do it. Just do it. If, you know, something, if there's a hindrance that shows up, such as bullets are hitting you, just go with it, you know, fight through it. Yeah, I want to. I want to pick up on a couple of the points with the force on force aspect, just because of my history with it going around the country, teaching the utilization of that technology. Um, you see some really interesting things that, that when they, when they set their scenarios up, when they set their scripts up, hopefully they're doing that. So they understand they're in, in training objectives, but you see those problems where we don't introduce some of the realities and, and a couple of easy examples, right? You get, uh, whether it's patrol tactics or even a SWAT team using the system, and they're doing some type of vehicle assault or some type of force-on-force uh, -force event around vehicles, I will see over and over and over again, whether it's, you know, patrol or SWAT teams, where there's an engagement and the, you will literally see people running the, the marking rounds over the hood, over the top of the vehicle, underneath the vehicle, but they won't shoot through the glass because consciously they know the Sims round won't make it through and now what are we really doing? Uh, I, I'm, you know, training is not, you know, what we say we do. It's what we actually do. And if you look at uh, um, Jonathan Haidt's model of, of, of the mind, right, the, the concept of, of uh, system one, system two, and his analogy of the elephant and the elephant rider, what we have the elephant doing in that, that emotionally driven environment, he's going to do in a real life environment. So if we have our people that aren't running marking rounds through the glass because, well, the glass stops at some level. I know that. And they're standing up to get the engagements over the top. They're going to catch a lot of lead and they're not taking the opportunity to shoot through the glass. 
right? Let's compromise the glass, get a couple rounds through it, get hits on this guy, get him put down. But those are the type of training scars that start to occur when people don't really understand how to use the technology to the best of its advantage. You know, the, the aspect that Nur was talking about as far as, you know, catching a couple of rounds, you can always dedicate somebody that in that environment, when you see a round catch somebody on a, you know, femoral or something like that, you now put that person into a position where you're hit. Now he's another part of the event. So now I've got to deal with, you know, my Thames unit. I've got to deal with first aid. I've got to continue on with my mission. So you can have somebody in there that then forces that, hey, look, you know, you got these hits, you're still alive and functional, but this is the limitation I'm giving you. This leg isn't functional. You can still run your handgun, you can still run your rifle, but you're gonna have to hop around on one leg and now you become part of the training environment as opposed to that false sense of, hey, I'm gonna just take hits and always keep going. Ideally, we'd love to be able to say that, but he's right, it's not always the way it works. But you'll see those training scars that start to occur over and over and over again <clears throat> because people are not really breaking down the fact that we have a, a fidelity loss at some level with all levels of simulation. Whether it's the video sim stuff I'm doing now or whether it's a force on force, you, you have a point in time where the fidelity doesn't match up with the reality. And we've got to watch that <clears throat> because if I'm letting bulletproof side window glass stop my force on force marking round i'm now training myself i'm training that elephant to do that in real life and those are the issues um not shooting through structures right um you know we know somebody sitting behind something that will not stop my my rounds but we don't take the hits with my force on force stuff because well it can't penetrate that that flimsy little cabinet on the other side in the kitchen you know, yeah, I can. I can get some hits through there. Um, but those are the limitations that we start putting on when, when we're using some of this technology inappropriately. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I wanted to jump in real quick on what Nir and Dan were talking about. With, in Lon's 1,000% right about not shooting what you can't see. That's a human thing uh, that you see in training, and it is a scar. But uh, think about the team's that are not homogenous. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I spent a lot of my life training FBI agents uh, at Quantico and I knew they were going to go out and they were going to work in a task force environment or, or what is the, the in, in vogue term of our law enforcement partner. Um, but the reality is, is they would end up in a stack uh, outside a door. And what I call that is a rattlesnake roundup where you've got ATF, DEA, FBI, uh, state police, local police, deputy sheriff, and, and what are the odds that any of them all have the same tactics? Uh, there, none. That that's the chance. You got zero chance that that happened, and those are very. That's very very common. Um, and and I, you know, used to caution my agents an awful lot about, hey man, take if you can take an hour before the hit and just talk through, you know, how are we even going to approach this thing and get into the first room because your tactics are not going to be the same just because you're in law enforcement. Um, Cause so many agencies do things uh, so, so differently. And uh, yeah, that those are the things that, that I was really concerned about. Uh, and we lost an agent in that very environment uh, named Sam Hicks. But uh, I just wanted to throw that out for, for people to think about because not everyone has the same tactics. Nice. Yeah, there's, there's like three things that drive most people's training and equipment program, right? Preference, personality, or performance. Preference normally falls on preference on somebody on the team, whether it's the, the team leader, chief of police in some regards, right? Um, it's what they like. 
whether it's they, they're comfortable with it, it's what they've used in the past, that's what they grew up on the team with, and, and you know, that, that preference sits there. Personality falls into what you see a lot of times, we talked about it earlier, um, you know, some big name trainer, some alphabet soup organization, they do it this way, that personality then drives it, right? Because they do it, because so-and-so said so, you know, then, then we've got to do it. And then finally, performance. Um, and, and performance should be the thing that drives it, right? I mean, I think we can all argue that that's the case, but it usually it, that's not the case. Performance is is the the decision maker, and that's 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 where we test it, pressure test it, pressure test our tactics, pressure test our equipment. Um, you know, and we can do a lot of that now that we couldn't always do. And and you know, from a from a DT, a defensive tactics, rest and control world, we, you know, you can test tactics, right? I, I think my kung fu grip is better than your kung fu grip. Let's go get on the mat and let's go find out, right? And, and we can do that, but we've got to use force-on-force technology appropriately. We've got to use timers. We've got to do, you know, let's actually see where the performance is. But we've got to marry it up with the real-world aspects. Um, a lot of times we, we test some of these things in, in what I would call perfect conditions, right? I'm, I'm in my kit and I got my sunglasses on. I got my full camel pack with some ice in it. Um, I got my hair perfectly gelled when I had it. Um, you know, and sun's in a perfect position. That's not testing. You know, that's not testing real world. That's, you know, that's going through the motions, but let's, let's actually pressure test it and see what we really come up with. I love that term pressure test because, uh, today in the world, especially of, uh, you know, unarmed combat DT, all the, uh, the martial arts stuff. I mean, that seems to be the number one catchphrase everybody used it, uses, you know, we've pressure tested these techniques. And then when you get down to it, the uh, concept of the, a lot of the pressure testing that's done out there is people in a controlled environment, in their dojos on the mats or in the basement of their own home, you know, uh, playing around with some friends, whether they're resisting or not, you know, factually, uh, okay. But that's not pressure testing. The basis of pressure testing starts with a proper analysis of has this been used in a real-world environment systematically against um, an adversary or a threat that is hell-bent intent and has a necessity to defeat you, not to, you know, simply resist with no end objective. Um, so that is is bang on. I think that, you know, I think the best place is where you see um, somewhat the um, – kind of the, the end result of, uh, of proper, I'll, I'll call it pressure testing, is when you really have a true feeling of um, adversarial, you know, uh, um, uh, engagement. You know, you got to really give people motivation in a training environment to defeat each other, not just to, to work with each other on the emotional, mental, physical, tactical plane, but to really, really defeat each other um you know and 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 that's where you really see whether something's got any cracks in the armor and will stand the uh the um you know the test of time to 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 that point of the, the pressure testing reality in the field will always be the end uh you know the final classroom of whether something works but that, that, that term pressure tested it just gets thrown around so much in uh, in our industry and when you dissect you know the definition of how things have been pressure tested a lot of times it's just not so it's not valid. Yeah. And, and in that case, it's really not a pressure test. It's a validation, but I'm validating what I think the outcome should be. Right. My Kung Fu grip's better than your Kung Fu grip. And I'm going to set the parameters up to test it, but I can favor myself. That isn't pressure testing. You're hundred percent correct. 
Um, it's it's when we start building in the fact that that the one thing that we don't train enough for is error or recovery from error. It happens, right? Um, athletes do it, and, and I'm a little spoiled in that. My background before this whole cop thing, I come from an exercise and sports science background where we know we can train athletes to make decisions. We know we can train athletes to recover from error, um, but we don't do that, right? We, we practice our rest and control tactics uh, with proper wrestling shoes on a soft mat in a perfect environment, not in a parking lot with gravel or wet grass, which was what we really fight on. That's where we start talking about really pressure testing as opposed to just, well, I'm going to validate that in this sterile environment or in the lab, yeah, it works. In a lab, a lot of it works. Absolutely. I was going to say, I think, too, when you're looking at, um, you know, we're all trainers, right? I think everybody on this panel, we've all developed some expertise. We're out there training. And one of the things that I always really is, 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 you know, when when you're one of the things I joke about, there's there's nothing worse than a tactician that's gone to one school, you know, because it's uh, a joke around, you know, so I stayed at the Marriott and I know this one tactic school and I apply that to everything across the board. And, that, and that's a mistake. So you need to broaden your horizons. But when we talk about, you know, the pressure test, one of the things I ask for everybody out there listening, when you go to a school, you know, I hope that your instructors that are teaching you have humility and are willing to say, hey, this is what we use. But you know what? In this one circumstance, it had a shortcoming and this is how we had to adjust it. So, so you've constantly got to look at this. And, and uh, you know, one of my mentors, when I was uh, getting into the tactical world, um, you know, that, that, that was always his thing. And, and, and when he would, he would teach and then he would come back, Hey man, if you're ever using something like this and you come up with a problem that it did not work, or there's a, a gross adjustment that had to be made, would you please call me? so that I can learn from that as well. And that takes a level of humility. And sometimes when you go to these training environments, you don't get that. It's it's like, just as you're joking, this is my Kung Fu grip. And this is why it defeats all other Kung Fu grips. And uh, man, that I, I think that's unfortunate because uh, I think you do need a level of humility when you're talking about uh, movements and operations that have very severe consequences and have the human factor of every individual operator. And, um, you know, I won't go too much on my soapbox here, but you know, yeah, there's teams that go see what these uh, tier one teams do. And that's great. I'm not knocking those. God bless that we have people like that in the world. Um, I'm not one of them. And so if you teach me all those and those tactics and, I don't train them. And then I go out, I'm going to have my own human shortcomings and that's going to fail in that given situation. And so it's not only as the operator, do you have the humility to recognize like, Hey, this just isn't working. And so we need to figure something out as at a team level. And then do the instructors that are teaching you have the humility to really dissect and and really talk about the real life experience and where shortcomings have come and how they've had to adjust. Absolutely. I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's not what we're good at that um, that defeats us, that makes us lose. It's what we don't know and what we're not good at. And um, there's always just as much, if not more value in looking at, I'll call it the mistakes, you know, the really bad things that have occurred out there, the failure of, of tactics, of strategies, what have you, and really honing in on them and really understanding um, intrinsically what went wrong and why, and, you know, trying to build up 
from uh, from those points of weakness. That's all the adversary needs. He just needs that one crack in the armor to exploit, and we're done. Doesn't matter how strong and good and you know uh, awesome we are at tactics with everything else. They don't need that. They just need our weakness. It's true. I think there's too many times that we forget about the adversary, right? Uh, I know when I'm, I'm teaching a, a patrol level, you know, class, it's, you know, we can have these tactics and we forget about like, okay, here's our gas plan and we're going to deploy gas and we're going to drive into this place. Okay. That's all great. What options does the suspect have? What options does your adversary have that can counteract every good plan and good intention that you had? And, uh, you know, I know we're talking about SWAT teams, but I think in the patrol realm, even then we forget about our adversary sometimes. So you have this person that just did armed robbery with a with a, a, a firearm and he's on probation. So we're all, hey, well, let's just go do a probation search. And so everybody goes, yeah, let's go do a probation search, forgetting that the suspect may be thinking like, hey, jigs up. They all know they're coming from me. And, um, you know, now's the time I'm going to fight it out with the cops. And are they ready? Where I think if we thought about our adversary a little bit more, we'd go, okay, well, if, if we put, we're going to go do a high risk search warrant on this 211, this armed robbery suspect who's load, has a firearm, we'd probably adjust a little bit different than four officers doing a knock and talk on a probation search. Um, so just, I think you're spot on about forgetting about our adversary sometimes. And one thing, saying it. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I always call that he gets a vote too. You know, the bad guy gets a vote too. never forget that. And and the one thing I was going to say about the kind of the history, which is really interesting, is right before 01, 02, Afghanistan kicks off, you know, our the FBI SWAT community, we did a lot of dynamic, a lot of, you know, flashbang the first room, get in there, dominate, uh, very, very aggressive. And then as uh, HRT and other SWAT people were deploying uh, overseas, and they were seeing tier one units who were doing that. Then now they were doing very slow surround call them out, you know, doing the old fashioned call out that they used to teach, you know, way back when. And the reason was is because it's the safest. Well, it's a safer option. Uh, so you don't lose a guy. And then our, you know, our folks were coming back and they're saying to, to the SWAT teams, hey, man, why are you going in there? You know, the FBI was very fortunate. We weren't doing dope rescue or evidence rescue, you know, the, we already had the case against a guy. So, you know, uh, surround the house and call them out is more than likely a safer option for the agents and the officers. Um, but that is a real interesting um, history of, of how things change based on what you've seen, especially, you know, being in different environments like Afghanistan. I thought that was a huge plus for us. I mean, those, those guys can still go dynamic with the best of them. But they also know that it's uh, probably the safer option is to slow down and don't push a bad position um, like you're talking about near a guy shooting through a refrigerator. Well, you know, why even in there? You know, that would be, I guess, the bigger question. And, and I'm, I'm glad to see that, actually. Again, that speaks back to humility of teams being able to say, hey, this might be a safer option for our guys. And, and hopefully anyone listening to this, it's in charge of leading, you know, human beings. That's what your priority is, is the safety of your people. Thanks. Absolutely. You know, we, we actually talked a little bit before this podcast kicked off on some of the smaller team considerations. Um, and there are still a lot of teams across the United States that are, are pushing dynamic on everything. Right. It's a dope warrant. We're going to go dynamic. You know, it's uh, evidence. We're going to go dynamic. Um, and I don't think for most of them it's an ego thing. I, I volunteered a lot of time training smaller teams. Um, literally on my own dime, 
going up and, and working with with a couple of teams here in the state of Arizona. You know, they've got seven to nine guys and they're doing everything dynamically. And they just you, you don't have the bodies to do that. I mean, you don't have the training time to get really good at it. You don't have the bodies to do it effectively. And it wasn't ego for the guys on the team. It was really that they hadn't been exposed to other concepts. And, you know, their, their, their leadership sat in my classroom portion, their chief sat in my classroom portion. And I started talking about, you know, slow and deliberate methodologies and clearing structures from outside. And, you know, the fact that, Hey, look, at this point in time, do you really care? I mean, let's take those windows out. Let's clear from the outside of this thing. Let's shield up on this. Let's pick this house apart. Yeah. You might have to pay to replace a window here or there, but ultimately it's a lot cheaper than paying for somebody's funeral. And, I, I lay this out and, and by by lunch where we finished up the, the the classroom portion, the chief actually stood up and he said, all right, from now on, this is how you guys will do all of your warrants. Any questions, any dissension. Um, and it wasn't an ego thing. I just they hadn't been exposed to it and talking to him like, no, we we trained with so and so and everything we did was dynamic and hostage rescue. Let's go. Right. Dynamic. We got to we got to get in there. But for almost everything else, you, dynamic gives you such a narrow window for success. I mean, your your error capability or error windows are really narrow where you can recover from it. Um, they just didn't know any better. And and those smaller agencies, the the, the mid civilized in some maybe you're right that there's an ego involved. They just haven't been exposed to it. If, if it's an ego issue, um, this is how we do it. Um, yeah, until until you lose somebody, you didn't need to. And then you'll start reevaluating it. But there's a reason NTOA, Cato, um, almost all the other major organizations are out there going, hey, look, if, if you're still doing everything dynamic, you're wrong. Before we jump into the next topic, I do quickly want to remind everyone of the International Law Enforcement Training Summit that's taking place July 27th through 31st. There's going to be over 45 of the top instructors in the world, including three instructors from this very episode, Lawn. Near and James are all conducting their own training sessions as part of the summit. And there's going to be over 75 hours of training content altogether. And that is going to be completely free. So if you're in law enforcement, security, corrections, military, or first responder, this is going to be the training event of the year. Make sure to check it out. You can go to iletsummit.com and get your free ticket today. There was an interesting point that got brought up um, with the inbreeding, because uh, that's something that comes up on this roundtable pretty much all the time. Every time we run one is getting outside your bubble and learning from other people um, and how important that is from an instructor <laughs> perspective. Um, not necessarily exposing the student to a plethora of options, but having that vetted down through an instructor who's actively seeking out new pieces of information and then bringing it working under their parameters, underneath their policies and procedures of their agency, and then bringing that to their their officers and how important that is. Um, so that's another an interesting point to talk about. The other one um, would be, um, Nier kind of brought this up, and this is something more so when we talk about training um, and how you guys had said taking the mindset of the opponent or of the opposition. I mean, we have opt for training in the military for a reason where – you know, we'll build out training. We'll build out an actual defensive plan completely aside from the commander that's building their assault plan. And it basically, it's like a it's a one for one war game. 
and you you kind of have to really change things up and it, it gives you the ability to change things up. So is that something that's being done in law enforcement training or is that something that is kind of just almost too big of a scale to to think about doing? Um, I want to touch up on the first part of your uh, question there, uh, which is the, uh, the uh, how do you term it there? The inbreeding uh, training issue. Um, you know, here's an analogy that I throw around a lot. If, um, if let's just say, you know, God forbid, we had to go see a surgeon to get some kind of a real uh, sensitive, you know, procedure done where the consequence of success or failure meant um, that we're adversely negatively affected, you know, for the rest of our lives, maybe even dead if this surgeon screws up. And if this surgeon, you know, was trained in a certain method, technique, whatever they call it in their world, and uh, he screws up on us. And we later find out that there were alternative methods available to him that he could have gone and learned. I think all of us would be pretty pissed off at him because, you know, we were thinking that's a real uh, lack of, uh, of a professional approach and uh, an open mindedness to really be the best at what he does for the benefit of the patients. And so different in uh, in our world. Um, I, I uh, you know, a lot of. A lot of, uh, I hate to use the term uh, experts, but I'll throw it out there. A lot of instructors, experts, whatever you want to call them, they are very good at what they do, very proficient. They're very knowledgeable and they're experts at what they know and what they do. But that's kind of where it ends. And as we all know in life, you know, uh, we don't know a hell of a lot more than we do know. And um, when we have different methods of doing things, different tactics, um, you know, go to different parts of the world, go to different agencies, even in the same country, military, law enforcement. I think that there is an obligation of responsibility and professionalism to not just kind of look at something uh, or try it out and say, well, no, you know what? I still like, prefer, believe in what I do. But for me, um, a true expert, again, I'll call it, or instructor that I really would give a lot more credibility to is one that can sit there and say, well, you know, in the U.S. they do this, in Canada they do this, in Israel they do this, and wherever they do this, and you can ask me to teach any one of those tactics, and I can teach to you as if that's the one that I believe in. Um, somebody who really takes in everything that's available out there as far as options and truly studies what is done, why it's done, how it's done, and can switch back and forth from pretending to be an expert in either one of them wholeheartedly um, to that particular tactic, whether they believe in it or not. But that's a sign, an indication of, you know, again, an, an expert instructor who truly knows what's out there and can really put their, uh, their credibility, credibility behind why one is better than the other or one is inferior to the other because they know it inside and out and they can teach either one of them and apply either one of them. Um, so that's kind of something that, you know, you don't see too often. People just kind of will get exposed to, to the other options out there and then just make these distance kind of decisions of like, yeah, this looks good. This doesn't, this maybe works for us, you know, this didn't work for them. So we don't, you know, we're not going to go with it. Um, but there isn't really an indoctrination of, uh, of um, you know, everything that's available and try to 
either really make something succeed while at the same time trying to defeat it and see what stands, you know, the test of, of, uh, of real judgment. Adam, I was going to jump on your question if I could about the op for, and again, just from the, from the federal perspective, you know, we, we had a lot of money and uh, we had role players in Hogan's alley where I was a tactical instructor and they were great. Um, I mean, we use all kinds of virtual stuff, which was interesting. Um, but, but the one thing we couldn't mirror and the one thing I was begging for, but was never enacted during my time there was I wanted some people like trustees from the jail, right? Some people that really have that, that dogged determination that they're not going to get arrested today. Uh, and that is extremely difficult to, uh, to, to, to provide in training. But all the people on this panel know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, that's another level of commitment when you're going after a guy, majority of the time a guy, who is hell-bent on not getting arrested today. Well, uh, he's ready. And, and, and that's the thing I, I, I would love to find the ability to, to train to. I don't know how you would do it. Uh, I, mean, I think about it a lot. But, but that's what we need. You know, that we need that type of training for the officers to understand, you know, this isn't your partner who's just going to roll over and knuckles together, a thumbs up for you to handcuff. No, it doesn't work that way. Um, not all the time. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it happens, but I just don't know if, if, if we're maybe what the military is doing with Op4. I don't know in the law enforcement circles if, if we're getting as much bang for the buck in, in that world as we as maybe we should. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree. Uh, wholeheartedly, James. I mean, you know, I think a lot of times I, I look back at the failures I made too, uh, as a, as a training or setting up scenarios, you know, sometimes our op four was kind of a pre-plan, like this is how the scenario is going to go. And then the bad guy is going to do this. And, and, you know, and then recognizing later on, like, you know, well, that, that's great, but that's not real life. There's, there's a fluidity to um, real life events and every action we take. Sometimes our adversary has five different options that they were, that they could take at any given moment. And so I would really encourage, uh, you know, teams as they're setting up scenario training and, and you, you know, when you set up scenario training, you kind of get in this uh, trail of this is how I want the scenario to go. Um, I know that on the last round table on the active shooter, um, which if you haven't watched, please, it's excellent. But uh, they, they talked about the red hat uh, concept that opt for that's, that's constantly within the scenario, thinking of a way to defeat those, those next movements or those next steps or, we were having the scenario go this way, but we switched it on the fly. And it's not to set up the impossible mission. So everybody's, you know, slaughtered on the team, but it's really to get people to think on their feet and recognize when situations have changed and to make those critical millisecond needed tactical decisions to address that problem. I think we're getting better at it. I, I do uh, with humility, think that we need a little bit more, uh, more focus on that. And, you know, maybe it's, the jail inmate idea is great. I don't know of any chief uh, that's going to allow that to happen, but, you know, maybe it's really wiring up your, your role players and having somebody that's kind of like that red hat, that's constantly looking at how the scenario is going and then communicating with people like, Hey, move to this position now or, or change this, do this. Uh, that's going to keep uh, the operators on their feet to deal with that. Yeah, I think you can do that and still maintain all your safeties. I mean, I've, I've seen it set up. I've seen people run it multiple different ways. Um, but it boils down to the training evolution intent, right? Let's support the intent of the training evolution, whatever that, that intent is. If the intent is specific that we want them uh, focusing on first aid for a downed officer or a rescue or whatever it is, 
okay, we can still do that, but we can add some of those paradigms that when, when our role players, you know, we've got them scripted tight, but we've got a controller, red hat, whatever you want to call them, that says, okay, I see a weakness or I see where we've dropped a, an area of responsibility. We need to make sure that that is brought out and clarify that that was a, that was a tactical error. Then we can now let our bad guys compromise or, or, or take advantage of that. And now it compromises the safety of the team or the position, wherever it is. All of those things can be done. And I think they can be done safely. I've seen it done. You know, you do it with hand signals. You do it with verbal commands, right? So, so certain phrases that seem very innocuous that don't, you know, doesn't make any you know difference. One of your, your primary instructor, as he's letting this thing evolve, says some phrase. And that's the cue to your your opposition force that, hey, look, okay, they've left this position open or, you know, they're not covering that window or whatever it is. So you're still controlling it and you're allowing for that evolution that is as responsibilities that should have been covered, weren't covered. They drop. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to hammer you for that mistake. And we're going to sit there and show you that, Hey, this is why if that's your area of responsibility, you need to pick up that area of responsibility and take care of it. But that can, I think that can all be done. I've seen it done um, safely, but people have to understand how to evolve the training appropriately. Um, and, and sometimes the instructor development component focuses so much on the mechanics of the game, but not necessarily the application and the rules of the game with those mechanics. And the analogy that I, I give sometimes is, you know, you get somebody that's taking a football and they're sitting there and they're throwing a football over and over and over and again inside of a tire swing, right? And they can hammer that on the move and all kinds of stuff. That doesn't make you a quarterback. Not in any way, shape, or form. Because the moment we start putting pads on, we start changing angles, we start dealing with rushing, it, it, it changes the dynamics. And, and we have to understand that if we're just playing the mechanics game, we're just playing, the, you know, the aspect of the, the basic – you know, functional aspects without the application of the rules. And those rules include the rules of reality. Um, we are doing a disservice to our teams. Yeah, I think a lot of it, at least from police departments and, and you know, the federal system, uh, a lot of it is what I call the culture of no, N-O, not K-N-O-W. I wish to God it was K-N-O-W, but it's N-O, meaning every time you ask to do something that's maybe different, it, the answer is always no. And the reason is, is because, well, we've always done it this way and they don't like to change. So that's kind of like, A, is just getting over the culture. And if you're in a department where they embrace uh, new things, then, you know, God love you. You're, you're in a great, great spot. Um, but I'll tell you, just from an innovative standpoint, one thing that we do, and it's not anything you have to incorporate, but I love it. And I'm in the private sector now. And I tell you, we, we do a thing called stress inoculation in our, in our training where we use dogs and we use, uh, you know, Malinois or German shepherds um, who don't know it's training. They think it's real. And, and we asked a student to, you know, perform a task while he or she is being bitten, you know, by this animal who does not think this is a game. Uh, and, and I've seen some really good, you know, like, okay, that works because it's getting them scared. Uh, unlike anything I'd seen in the law enforcement kind of training, the traditional, you know, buddy, buddy up for defensive tactics and everyone's kind of going half speed, man, those dogs aren't going half speed. They're, they're bringing it. And, uh, and you see an awful lot about, about the human and, and their will to win, uh, when, when they're in that environment, I, I like that, those types of things that, uh, you know, that are innovative and, and new and different. 
but if well, that entire phrase, right, we've always done it this way. My my response is a little colorful. Uh, my response is, you know what? You crapped your pants your first three years out of your life. You outgrew that. You can outgrow this stupid crap, too. Um, that that entire concept of what well, we've always done it this way it goes back to that preference statement that I made earlier. That's your preference. That's what you're comfortable with. But you don't grow Mm-mm. when you're comfortable. Mm-mm. We don't grow when we're comfortable. We grow when we're uncomfortable, whether it's mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. We grow when we're uncomfortable. You want to get in shape. You don't do the same thing you're comfortable with. You got to do more than what your body's used to. Um, get uncomfortable. Training environment, get uncomfortable. That's when you're training. Uh, if you look at the the entire concept of deliberate and purposeful practice, right? Uh, Anders Ericsson's work and all of that he's done on establishing expertise. He's clear. The research is clear that you get better at that point that you're not happy, that it's un, it's miserable. It's tough. The aspect of the dogs. I love it, man. I, I, I used to catch for our canine team um, and you ain't kidding. I don't care what suits you're wearing. When the land shark is grabbing a hold of you and shaking you, your heart rates through the roof and you're breathing like it's going out of style. But that's a great way to, to induce, you know, that that stress. The challenge, though, is a lot of times what I see is people do stress exposure training and not stress inoculation training. Right. The concept of inoculation is that I, I produce the stress in the environment and then my body, my brain, whatever, has an opportunity to cope with it. So in a psychological domain, right, we have to build coping skills. And those coping skills can be positive self-talk. It can be the utilization of autogenic breathing. It can be, you know, utilization of focus on mission and intent. Those are coping strategies that have to be brought along with it to be effective. If all we're doing is throwing stress at them, it's just stress exposure. And there's not a guarantee. And that's what the research says. You can go to uh, it's uh, Donald Meachenbaum's work, right? The original, the the, the guy that literally is the, the godfather of uh, of uh, stress inoculation training, um, you know, you look at, at his work, you, you've got to have the coping strategies built into it. And a lot of times we don't include this coping strategies. We don't tell them, hey, how are you supposed to handle the stress? We tell them, deal with it, but not the hows. And, and the hows are there. We know they're there. The, the research is pretty clear on it, but we got to build that in to, to part of the training. And sometimes it starts on the baseline, something as simple as, Every time that they draw their weapon or they bring their sh- their weapon up, we want them to engage in some type of autogenic breathing pattern. So they grab a hold of that, you know, one of the two physiological components that we have that we have both conscious and subconscious control over. And now I can grab a hold of that and I start working on my breathing pattern, bringing down my my arousal level. So I have more blood going to that prefrontal cortex. It allows me to make better decisions. Um, but I love that concept of the dog. I would love to put a heart rate on somebody and see what happens to them. <laughs> that's awesome you know i want to hit back on the, the inbreeding that was a really good good point about you know the doctor that's a great example because there are times when when a good tactic shouldn't be changed um you know or or a good whatever your your movement is um it shouldn't be changed and it works uh but i like the other comments that followed up on it but but just because it works it doesn't mean that you don't expose yourself i mean i think instructors especially should be drinking from a fire hose of knowledge, trying to constantly expose themselves to different ideas and concepts. And that doesn't mean you, you chase the next shiny new thing or new piece of equipment that's going to make everything better. Um, but it's really opening yourself up. So there's kind of this balancing act of, Hey, if something really works and there's the good history behind it and there's a solid, then don't look to change it. But are you always on the flip side, testing it and then seeing is, 
is is it not just that we've we've always done it this way? And, and and I'll agree with you. Even today, you know, I think majority of teams are away from dynamic, but there's still teams out there that like this is the way we do it. And and you know, we use the the the, the element of surprise and we overwhelm them. And and uh, and you just kind of have to wonder how much are you guys going outside and really seeing. Uh, what else is out there? And, and I'll agree with you, Lon. I don't think it's always it's always ego. It's some they just don't know what they don't know because they're not applying or looking and seeking that knowledge to, you know, is there a different way to do this, even though like, I knew this is the right way? And I think brain surgeons, that analogy, you know, brain surgery, there's certain types of steps you have to take to make that succeed. And you don't want to start messing with those steps. But I'm sure most brain surgeons are still looking for other ways to benefit their trade. And what works is works, but they're constantly challenging themselves to to look at the other angle and and kind of flip it upside down. Um, And the only other thing I'll say about some of these training uh, cycles is, you know, I was talking about the red hat and making it difficult and the challenge. You know, instructors also have to let uh, there's there's a time and place. And Lon, you said it with the intent. What is the intent of the training? And there's also a time in your training program that you need to you need to set up the win. You know, you need to you may have a difficult thing that you're, you're you know, new people on your team or something like that. And they're not recognizing threat angles. Well, that doesn't mean you kill them at every threat angle. It means you teach them and you try to create a learning environment. Um, and there's so many other resources out there. You know, how do you establish that learning is occurring while this training is going on? And um, and so there is that balancing act. You've got to pressure test. You've got to also stress inoculate, not stress induce, but inoculate. There's a time and place for that. And there's a time and place for kind of that walk through to make sure that people are learning, they're understanding the why, and they're not just going down the 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 uh, emotions and going through the motions of, well, this is how we do it. You know, it's like, it's super cool to see every SWAT poster where the lead guy's got his weapons up and everybody's got their heads tucked down and they look all cool in the stick. Um, <laughs> that doesn't translate to real world. Everybody should be looking for, for the next thing to do. And so we need to make sure that we're creating that tire training environment where that learning is occurring and that thought process is sinking in so that um, they can have success in the real world. Um, so. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, both of those phrases are, uh, are kind of flawed. The one phrase of if you are not changing what you're doing, then you're not relevant and you're wrong. And, you know, if you are changing, then somehow you're doing something right. It's got nothing to do with change. It's got to do with relevance, relevance, effectiveness, applicability in congruency to your real life environment. That's at the end of the day, what, what, you know, what has to be. Yeah, I'm gonna have to agree. Um, you know, but this whole thing kind of boils down to the the question that I like to ask, or I've been you know pondering for a long time. Team selection. When you start looking at members, um, I have made the argument for a long time. I would much rather have a thinker that can shoot than a shooter that can think. Um, I, I want somebody that that can learn how to play chess. Um, uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, uh, having a breacher that can, you know, do a screen rip and take out a door, you know, with, with, you know, just a small sledgehammer is great. Um, you know, and a fast shooters, phenomenal skills to have, but I want that, that individual who can make decisions. Um, because if, if I've got that decision maker, if I've got that thinker, um, he can eliminate or, or 
mitigate a lot of the necessary or unnecessary risks to the team, um, unnecessary risks to the public, um, can outthink your, you know, your, your convicts that you're bringing in as role players. Um, that's an important component. I don't always, I, I don't see where in our selection process we value or we prioritize thinking as a skill. We see physical fitness tests, we see shooting tests, um, you know, sometimes psychological, uh, you know, we had our team had to go through a couple psychological tests. I did it as I became a hostage negotiator and then on the team as well. Um, but I don't see where we test for creative problem solving and decision making. And I seriously believe in my heart that that makes a phenomenal team member. Um, and that's the one thing I don't think we really do focus on. That's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was a, I won't dime out, I won't dime out a, a team, but, you know, I know their testing process at one point uh, is another team I was familiar with. They, they, you know, they had like a two day physical fitness challenge. I mean, it, it, it was insane and that's great. I'm not, I mean, but uh, I remember asking one of the commanders at one point and we were peers and I, you know, I just said, Hey man, what, what are you doing to test their brain? You know, on when you're onboarding a new member, um, what, what are you doing to test their brain? How, how, how have you set it up? And he's like, well, that's all covered in the oral interview. And it's like, okay. And, I, and I'm not saying like on an onboarding, you can totally get that, but I'll, I agree that's spot on that, that, that mental chess player um, and that thinker uh, is, is so critical. And, you know, we can spend four hours of a precious 10 hour training day doing physical fitness and then spend no, no time on study of tactics at times. And that's a, I think that's, that's a detriment to then when you have to deploy in the real world, uh, go down range and then make split second tactical decisions to, to maybe uh, take advantage of a, uh, a pause in combat or this momentary opportunity that it just has to be. And, um, and then for, you know, having been a commander, you know, it's very, for me, it was very easy to trust my team when I knew that they were all capable. So I've heard teams and I think we've, we've seen, uh, you know, teams where everything has to get approved in a real live op. Like say it's a barricade, a hostage negotiation thing. And I'm not saying we just have teams go rogue, but there are times when, Hey, you have separation. The hostage is at the window and the, we know the bad guys on the other set and they're asking for permission to make it take a compromise action. And, and I was just wondering like, Hmm, you know, I mean, is that because, you know, they're, they're not comfortable in making those decisions on the fly as your, your react team, or, or is it the commander's not comfortable with allowing their team without, with taking that sort of action without prior approval up the chain. And, and, and that's a problem. Um, you know, I, I had another team, uh, you know, state, uh, you know, that, that their team wasn't always deployed because they felt, well, you know, you deploy your SWAT team. It's like deploying a hand grenade. Once you pull the pin and throw it down range, you know, they're, they're out there. And I'm like, well, that, <laughs> you have some serious trust issues and, and confidence issues with your team. And I, and I do, I put that back on the team leaders and the operators and even the commander of that team, getting their administrative staff to understand that, that no, we're not that way. Uh, we're all thinkers and we're going to try to do the best possible, uh, tactics and plan and strategies to um, achieve a successful outcome in every uh, possible uh, way that we can. And, and, 
and I, you know, I, I still think we have growth to do. And I, I still, you know, now like at an executive level, I got to make sure that I'm instilling that same confidence with my commanders and my team and even with my, with my boss. Yeah, that's a great, great point, uh, Dan, that, you know, there are names of, you know, our fellow coworkers who are, they're on the wall now because of bad decision-making like you just described where people who are at the talk or the command center want to dictate tactics to the people who are at the breach point. Um, and, and, and that's a dangerous road to be going down. And anyone's just listen, I would beg you, you know, like, don't do that. Uh, I always would ask. And when I would, you know, teach mission planning, you know, we'd use SMEAC, you know, situation, mission, execution, administration and command and control. And I'd always say with regards to command and control, who's in command, if the answer is, well, you know, the SAC and he's back at the office, then the next question is, well, who has tactical command? Who has the ability to enter that breach point? Who has the tactical command while in there? And, and that needs to be the person there and not somebody in the rear, you know, making decisions that, that you know, they really should not be making from a, you know, a tactical standpoint. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Dan, as well, that I think, um, you know, the role of a, of a commander and what makes a really good commander, someone who understands that our job is to coordinate what everybody should be doing and, you know, making sure everybody is doing everything in accordance to, you know, protocol and stuff. But there's no greater reassurance than to know that, you know, um, your, your, your team out in the field, um, they don't need you to tell them what to do the second opportunities present themselves. That is success is that when you know that they can think independently, they'll make the best decisions that they can make given, you know, what they, uh, what they face in those uh, moments. Um, but really the role of commander, I think is more to step back and just make sure the team is coordinated properly. And they're the ones doing all the, uh, all the work and trust that they're going to do exactly what needs to be done. That's why they're there. It's the most, you know, horrific, uh, um, uh, concept, notion, idea, I don't know what to call it, that, uh, you know, a commander's got to be out there thinking like a babysitter, you know, my guy's doing the right thing. You know, if you don't trust your guys, that really is the kind of foundation of, of everything. Um, when it comes to the tactical world, special operations, I mean, the, the very first virtue that, um, you know, that is, is drilled from even the, the point of selection is be there for your teammates. You know, that's what it's all about. Yeah, the need to be able to carry out the commander's intense critical, you know, and, and but that goes again to you have to have thinkers. They have to be able to to understand what that is and then be able to carry it out and make those decisions rapidly. Uh, but you also have team issues where they're not allowed to. Um, the culture is such that every decision has to be run up and run back down because somehow there's this fear that if I don't allow that, or if I don't control everything, then there's a liability perspective. Um, no, you can't deploy that tactic or that tool until so and so gives you the you know appropriate uh, you know uh, approval process, um, or you can't engage in that. It's like, well, I've got a narrow window of ten seconds where I can literally rip this hostage through this window while the suspect is on the other side of the house, eliminating the hostage and turning this from a hostage situation to just a barricade situation. Um, but I've got to tell somebody that I've got him at the window on, you know, the, uh, the two, three corner, uh, and I've got to get permission to pull this kid through. It's too late. You know, you, you get a narrow window on it, but 
again, agencies, sometimes they don't allow people to make those decisions because they're afraid of liability. Yeah, absolutely. I remember um, a couple of years back, I was teaching at a conference, a tactical conference, and uh, I was able to catch the one of the keynote speakers who was uh, presenting. Uh, he was a, if I remember correctly, a 2IC and a fairly large um, uh, uh, TAC team. Um, I don't even remember which state now, but they had a hostage situation. Um, and, um, um, you know, they they're from from the onset as soon as the attack team arrived they roll out the uh uh all the uh all the tools and the resources start putting together the plan collecting all the intel and uh, it was a prolonged um uh you know period of time of getting everything ready and the plan the um uh, the deliberate uh, uh plan was already passed up the chain of command was already uh, uh, stamped with the approval, and they were now in the position that they were starting to prep into the uh, point zero there to um, uh, to execute. And so this um, this gentleman here, this um, uh, 2IC that was giving this presentation, who was there, um, he had a disagreement with, um, uh, I should say, he, he, he uh, didn't like the choice of um, specifically what it was, was the number one guy through the door coming in with a shield. And I, I agreed with him right away when I was, you know, viewing the uh, scenario that he was presenting. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of uh, ballistic shields at all in these types of applications. But um, he had very valid um, points as to why um, the shield should not be there or pass it further down the, uh, the line, not with uh, number one going through. Um, and by that point, uh, it was either... One IC or uh, or the incident commander right above that said it's it's too late. Plan's already been approved, and we're not going back and making any changes. And they're still in the paradigm of you know uh, prepping for the deliberate uh, assault here. It's not that there was any immediate um, action that was uh, that was triggered. So there was zero excuse to not sit there and you know quickly explore um, the pros and the cons and make changes if uh, if need be. And um, what ended up happening was um, the shield ended up when they went in, um, the shield ended up being a bit of an impediment. And uh, if I remember correctly, it either delayed number one's uh, ability to act or to exploit in uh, an angle that uh, that was open. And uh, unfortunately, that uh, that incident didn't turn out very well. Um, they were able to shoot the uh, the hostage taker, but he was still able to uh, shoot the uh, hostage that he was holding. And I just thought that was really really dumb, just really dumb. Like, you know, the consequences are, there's no turning back. It's, it's, it's dire consequences. And if there is no trigger of an immediate um, intervention, then there's no reason to not explore what anybody on that team from top to, uh, to bottom might potentially see or think or be able to put on the table and maybe other people didn't take into consideration. Um, I think there's really no uh, no room for that when we're talking about the uh, potential for, you know, the consequences of uh, of what we do. You know, Mike Tyson's back in the news right now, and it's kind of funny in that regard because his famous quote applies to what we were just talking about. Yeah. Everybody has a plan until you punch him in the mouth. Um, you know, and that's the realities. If If we don't look at the next step, if we don't look at the fact that the plan may or may not work, it, you know, no plan typically survives first contact. Um, and then what's the next iteration? 
with our team, when we did walkthroughs, so if we had a, a planned mission, whether it was search warrant or whatever it was, we would do walkthroughs and we would set up mock uh, structures that mimic the threshold or the entryways. And we'd do our walkthroughs and our walkthroughs and our team leaders would then pick people within the team that would be shot through a wall and we had to deal with that or a window that was supposed to be covered ended up not getting covered and they would induce failures that would compromise our plan and then how we would have to deal with that over and over and over and over again and 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 that's got to be not only part of our training but part of the walkthrough for i think for the mission is specifically okay here's the plan and when this plan doesn't work we do it to some degree, right? So, you know, we, we talk about, um, okay, so our primary breach point is going to be uh, the front door. And if we get a failed breach, then we're going to go to this. Uh, that's great. But what about the other components? Like, you know, what you're talking about, you step in and I'll second guy or first guy is catching a bunch of rounds. What are you doing now? Are you walking through that, that iteration of, of what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'd like to take a little stab at, uh, you know, early flash the comment from uh, Greg uh, Baker and I'll, uh, I'll hit that in a minute. You know, near when you're talking, I was, I was thinking of a, a, a time when we had just gotten these new shields and um, they were magnetized, super cool. You slap them on a car and all that, but uh, we had never trained with them in a commercial building. <laughs> so all, it was, it was pretty classic. Thankfully it was scenario training. We were trying to do a hostage rescue and a guy wanted to carry a shield in first and, uh, it was often when those magnets uh, hit the all metal uh, threshold and stuck <laughs> and like, and it just stopped everything. So just your story reminded me of that. And uh, it was funny, it would have been horrific in a real life event, but um, you know, Greg, uh, Greg Baker, you, uh, a question or a statement as far as the yeah, ads, it's very hard. And I think you're, you're hitting the point of it is very hard to teach that, um, that critical thinking element. Um, if I can just give, and I'd love to hear from the panel how, how they've done this with their teams or how they do that in the structure. If I could just uh, throw out, like, you know, kind of one of the things uh, we had done on our team is, um, you know, you have a team leader role who should be a little, should be removed, should not, in my opinion, shouldn't be up at the front of the stick, should be back watching the overall team. And so what we started doing is even the brand new boot, as we're going through training cycles and running things uh, like that, we were pulling everybody to take that position to kind of, be able to detach from their very finite view of the problem, see a bigger picture. And, and hopefully through doing that, even though um, you want your team leaders to be trained in how to do their team leader role, but if we can mix that in a little bit, it really gave everybody an opportunity to see a, li- a bigger set of the picture come to a different understanding like, Oh shoot, that needs to happen. And, and, and that guy didn't call an audible or, or, you know, he went left and, left that whole those thread angles open and they start seeing how, how, how that can shift. And I think that really, I know every time we we had new people, when we started putting them in those roles and challenge them where they had to call the audibles or they had to do that, um, you know, sometimes it led to failure and you had to, you know, not beat them up too bad and, and, and let them, you know, learn from those mistakes. But the important learning where we really had it again, going back to some of my original statements is that it's not saying like, Hey, you did this wrong. You should have done that. It's like, Hey, when this happened, what were the outcomes and is there anything that could have been done, uh, you know, differently or what would you, you know, what, what were you thinking? Or not what were you thinking, but, you know, why, why did you have this done? And just, just to help them guide that, to develop that thinking that it's not just about the physical movements, it's about that thinking component. So that's just one way we did it. I'm sure there's a ton more. I'd be interested to hear how other people have uh, introduced that concept. 
Yeah, you're, you're really talking about the, your questioning style that you just brought up is really kind of a Socratic method, right? The Socratic method has been around forever. Um, and, and walking them through their decision-making process. You're right. You don't want to sit there and say, well, you screwed this up. You screwed that up. You did this wrong. You did that wrong. Um, you want them to be able to really hit where they succeeded or where they failed. And, and you walk them through the basics of the information first. Okay. Um, tell me what it is that you knew. And it sounds like a basic question, but just because the information was provided to them, it doesn't mean they processed it. Doesn't mean that they assembled it. Doesn't mean that it, it registered with them. You know, so being able to ask them a basic question: What is it that you knew? Well, uh, um, you know, we had intel from this and this and this. It told us that this was the case, and subject had barricaded the uh, front door. Uh, there was a man trap. Uh, so they're, they're laying out the information. All right, great. Um, so what is it that that you did? And, and most of us have seen new operators. They'll tell you, you know, well, um, you know, when he came in uh, and I saw him and, and I told him to drop the knife, I said, okay, well, how many times did you tell him to drop the knife? Uh, twice. And, and you play it back, right? And it's that 15, 16, 18 times kind of thing. They're not even aware of, of, of what they did. We've got to get him aware of their behaviors and their actions. So what is it that you did? Um, and then we really get into the heart of it. So if you could do things differently, what would you do differently and why? So what they do would do differently is them formulating the plan, right? I'm, I'm coming up with other alternatives of how to answer this problem. And why goes back to the true understanding of the concepts, the tactical concepts uh, of, of the problems that they, or the problem solving that they had to engage in. Um, and that's a, that's a you know variation on the Socratic method of getting them to come up with the solutions, getting them to say what they did wrong or what they did right, um, and then have them process it appropriately. Um, and that's that early stage. Uh, Decision-making training is not easy, um, but if it was easy, then anybody could do it. But we do know it's effective, right? We can go to, like I said, the sports literature has got literally decades of training or uh, research on it. Um, and what we're talking about is the, the the pinnacle. Let's talk about the operational parameter at the pinnacle. At the top, we want people to be able to take in, assemble, process information, and make decisions based on whatever limitations, parameters, events, tactics, tools that they have. That's the end state. And we want them to be able to do it fast. We have to ramp them up to it. So we can give them, you know, you play with the variables. You give them their left and right limits. You give them all the equipment and the people that they have. And you give them a lot of time to make the decision. Well, then you can compress that time. Or you can take and remove strengths that they would have to pick from. And now they have to overcome because that loss of that strength, whether it's the canine is no longer available, the shield is no longer there. Um, you don't have two sniper teams. Something happened. You got one team and they are on this side of that structure. So that's where you start getting people to make decisions. You put them in tough situations and you force them to make decisions. And then they have to evaluate and process their decision-making process. One thing that we would do that I thought was really interesting and helpful for me as a young SWAT guy was after an operation, we would all have to do an AAR of, you know, what did you see? What did you do and why? And and you realize pretty quickly how myopic your world was. You only saw one thing. You had really no idea where anyone else was. And then the team leader, you'd read his and, and he sees it all. And, and so that kind of was interesting that you really didn't know a whole lot. And then secondly, he would let you, when we do uh, shoot house runs, 
he'd give each individual on the team an opportunity to run the team as a team leader through the shoot house. And, and that was very, very helpful um, to learn what his job was, but also to understand, man, I, I'm not ready for that. Or maybe I am ready for that. Um, but that, again, speaking of humility, you know, he was just an incredible SWAT team leader, but also had a, a really good ability to, to help us learn other jobs and, and, you know, get us uncomfortable. Like you were saying earlier on, you know, just, you know, it's not comfortable to run a team when maybe you're just a breacher or, and that's the other thing is get guys out of that thought process of, well, I'm just a breacher or I'm just a medic or I'm just an assaulter and you multitask them and, and let them do other jobs. Uh, and I think that's always a, a, a win for a team. I, I kind of pose the, a question um, to the team a little bit or the, the panel uh, is, did anybody have two AARs? Um, so for a while on, on my team, we would have two, we would have a event where we're going this, this AAR. And for whatever reason, all of the political aspects, the chiefs and whatever wanted to be part of this. And it was very politically correct. Then they would leave. And then we had the real AAR. And that real AAR tended to be very, very, very brutally honest. Um, you know, it was not uncommon for people to call out mistakes of other team members very passionately um, and, and sometimes with some profanity uh, because you're pissed that something happened. Um, you know, as an example, we had an event where. I'm as the breacher, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, usually back. I'm not, I'm not within the first six that are going to end up being entry unless I go to rip the door and they open it and I bought and paid for whoever's at the threshold. Um, But I would come in and a lot of times I'm going hands on with people and I come in after the majority of the team is dominated and I've got a a two guys running the hall, you know, dominated the hall and I've got a female sitting on a couch between me and the two team members covering down in the hallway and nobody's on her. And she's sitting there with a blanket and my brain's trying to, to process what's going on. And I go up and, and I grab the blanket. And when I pull it down, she's got a gun in her hand. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, all of this happening within split seconds. And I end up, you know, pinning the hand cause I was that close. And as I'm pinning it, I realized it was a lighter. Um, it was literally, you know, uh, one of those guns that or one of those lighters that looks like a gun. And I have at least two operators that bypassed her completely on the couch, sitting there under the blanket, plus other ones. When we had that AAR, that was a very brutally honest AAR. And, and, and I'm sure that um, uh, it would not go well for some of us or for me with the profanity that came out of my mouth. Uh, because of, of such a stupid mistake, um, such a simple task that should have never happened. So it wasn't uncommon for us to sometimes have two AARs, the politically correct one when all of the politicians were there, and then the brutally honest one where, and, and it, was, it was always done with love because we did care about each other and, and we never wanted anybody, anything to happen to anybody. Um, but it was like brothers, man. It was the knockdown fist fights and yelling at each other, you know, and we could say whatever we want about them, and, and, but you better not hurt my teammate. Um, so I was just, just kind of curious if, if that was just a, kind of a unique experience in my world. Mm. Yeah. Hey, can I pose a difficult question? So what do you do for those teams that uh, 
And I do have an opinion on this, but I'd love to hear. Uh, what do you do for those teams that uh, can only have one AAR? Means somebody like me won't leave the room, or your lieutenant uh, that is maybe the one that made the bad decision and won't leave the room. And we all talk about like, oh, we're all thick skin here. We've, we're getting to the tactical points. But the reality is, is there is that ball of emotion in the room sometimes. Uh, and just curious, uh, how do you guys handle that? Does your culture support it? Does your culture support the honesty? My my commander, I could close the door. Him and I could have knockdown, drag out fights. When the door was open, different story, right? Um, and we were professional and, and and whatnot. Same thing when when he was in the room and the doors were closed. We're doing AARs. It didn't matter who it was. Uh, we called him out on mistakes. He called out us out on mistakes. Um, and that was a cultural issue that changed a little bit with the politicians in the room. Um, but with the majority of the folks that I would say actually on the team, you know, the folks that trained with us every day that were, you know, sweating their asses off with us, um, in the shoot house that were doing what needed to be done. We were able to be honest with each other. And that was the culture and understand that, that when it's all said and done, it was to make everybody better. It's not personal, even though it may come out across that way. Cause it's passionate. Um, it, it's to make sure that we're all getting better. So I think your culture has to support that. For me, a lot of it's always, you know, is it a safety issue? Is it, is it something that's so egregious it could get one of us, one of us killed? It needs to be brought up to the, maybe someone who's not part of the team, somebody who's a, you know, the brass or leadership. Um, but other than that, I think we don't bring up those types of things in a uh, public AAR um, that's going to be, you know, dissected by someone who wasn't there. Um, we work on it internally, but if it's a safety issue, then I think you have to bring it up because, you know, again, you, you got to have something you, you fundamentally believe in and that would have to be the safety of the guys and, and girls you're working with in my mind. Yeah, I agree with that. There's been a lot of really interesting topics here. And before we kind of switch gears, I want to give everybody a chance to just on what we've just been speaking about. Does anybody have any further thoughts on the topics we were just speaking to? Oh, we could go for hours on some of these. Let's face wow, it. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, and if we were sitting at a bar with a beer, we could close the bar. So there you go. Well, I mean, we may have to start considering running these in person when all this, uh, this pandemic lifts. I think that's um, a great idea. Right. Okay. Well, I'll count you guys in. Um, Cause one of the things that I mean is interesting to talk about um, that I do want to get to um, that was already brought up is selection process for teams um, and how agencies, whether you're a large agency or a small agency go about doing that and kind of what we look for um, in terms of team members. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a huge component. Um, so before we jump into that though, I just want to let everybody here who's, who's watching this right now, if you're watching this live, um, we're going to be, I mentioned the international law enforcement training summit that's coming up later this year. We're going to announce more of that in July, um, or in June, pardon me, but, um, which actually features three of the instructors here on the panel. Um, if you're interested, so you're going to get more of these guys for sure. But if you're watching this live, send me an email at adam at the breakdown.ca and um, send me your name and your agency, and uh, we'll do a, a draw to get you guys some free all-access passes 
to that summit and some of our IRT t-shirts. So make sure to do that. And we'll, uh, I'll wait for you guys to send those into me and then we'll announce that at the, uh, in a few minutes here. So, um, do you guys want to switch over and talk about selection for teams? Um, and I think along with that goes into, I mean, and this was something that we brought up with Dan was how do we start if, if an agency doesn't have a team, um, what are the criteria that you talk about to actually put one together, stand a team up? Um, and, and this is something that, uh, you know, James had kind of spoken to is, is there a need for the team? Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a few different topics there. Um, so I'll let one of you guys, if you guys want to jump off on that, um, either direction, go ahead. I just, I'll go by what we did and, and there's no secrets about, you know, how the Bureau did it. Um, so you've made that decision that you're, you're going to have a team and, and of course, the, the very first thing would be interest. Are they, you know, you don't go and start telling people they're going to be on it. You, you know, this isn't a dictatorship. Uh, you just hold an open announcement, you know, whoever's interested, we're going to have a tryout. And then, it, of course, there's going to be components that, that you're testing against. I mean, we, we got so caught up in industrial psychologists uh, who were helping us create the testing. But obviously, there's a physical fitness component. You can do it at any point of your selection. Um, it, it shouldn't become like it did become, which was basically the entire selection was a physical fitness smoker for two days. And, you know, I don't know how uh, helpful that was, but, you know, whatever, kind of cool, uh, but maybe not effective. Uh, but there has to be a physical fitness aspect to it. So whatever your agency's physical fitness test is, you know, these individuals should be scoring in that 90 percentile. Um, they shouldn't just be average and they dang sure shouldn't be failing the agency physical fitness test. Um, if you wanted to incorporate job specific taskings, which most teams have gone to, I think that's a good idea. Things like what the FBI did is you would run uh, 50 yards with full kit and an 870 shotgun for time. You would do an 880 uh, assault dash as like an obstacle course. And then you would do pull-ups with a uh, full kit on. Uh, and that was part of the physical fitness test that all SWAT people had to do because it was, it mirrored job requirements. So I would tell you to, to do that. And then you would have to have some, like we were talking about, some type of brain testing. You know, it would be not just the interview. Obviously, you know, a lot of people can do well in the interview, but put them in a stressful situation and, and have them make some decisions. There's all kinds of tests that you, you can you can buy. Um, and, you know, and, and then lastly would just be how do they perform and one thing I'm a huge fan of is peer evals. So you have, you know, 20 people coming through selection and you ask them, you know, hey, who would you most like to work with and who would you least like to work with? Uh, and then we, you know, try to find a trend. And if there's the you know, same person showing up over and over and over again, more than likely, you know, that that, hey, that guy or that girl no one wants to work with, they probably don't make the team. And not to say this becomes a fraternity because it definitely should not be. But, but you do have to work with these people. Um, so there has to be an element of that uh, in my mind. And, and kind of as Dan was saying earlier, if it's becoming a two or three, four day event, wow. Um, I mean, God love you if you have that ability to, to, to run that many days. But most small departments, it might just be a couple of hours, maybe half the day. So, so those are the things I would look at. I love the idea of the the peer evaluation. That's something that yeah, I'm very familiar with, you know, where you rank top five, bottom five. And usually you're going to get those outliers, the people that the, the top five are usually the ones that the class has 
some type of they they trust them. They're the team players. Um, they're the ones that they respect. They're the ones that show competency um, in all the skills that they've been tasked to to accomplish so far. And and they stand out pretty readily. Um, and just like you had said, the the bottom five also stand out pretty readily because those are usually the people that don't um, play with the team very well. Um, that are kind of do things for themselves. They're selfish in some way, shape, or form. So um, I think that's a super important skill set. And we see that, um, and that's not just a law enforcement-specific thing. I mean, you see that in selection across the board. doesn't matter if you're a first responder, if you're on athletic teams. I mean, it's it's everywhere. So I think that's a really great point. Yeah, because the guys can fake it. That's the thing we found is that, you know, in a four-hour or even a full-day selection, you know, uh, you, you might have a guy who shows, you know, a good face to the instructors, but his the guys going through it with him know what he's really like, and um, and that that there's a real value in that pure eval. Yeah, from a municipal perspective, right? You're you're coming typically from patrol. What's their work ethic on patrol? Because um, that carries over. Are they? you know, dodging calls? Um, are they making good decisions? Are they, you know, those are all things that you could look for from, from the perspective of performance before they're getting on a team, especially when you have collateral duties. And the, the component is not just getting on the team, but staying on the team. Cause we dealt with issues where you had people that would get on the team and then again, it was collateral, a collateral responsibility and their primary responsibility of patrol started to suffer. Well, you can't have that either. Um, they've got to be able to find and maintain that balance um, to be effective, to be on the team, as well as to, to deal with their primary responsibility. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I've uh, I've observed is that your your weeding process um, really going to um, have its strongest influence in the qualification course over the selection process. Everybody, uh, you know, works really hard to get to the point of being able to get to selection and to pass selection. It's a much shorter period of time um, in, in many cases. And, um, you know, the, the machine of really everybody coming together, working together and reaching mutual objectives um, uh, uh, together happens throughout the qualification um, uh, training part of it, whether it's, uh, you know, one or two week uh, Q course, whether it's a year long Q course, that's really where you're going to see everybody's true nature come out. Um, and um, I think that the standard has to be maintained, you know, the standard and expectations mentally, physically, tactically for selection has to be somehow carried over through the uh, Q course part of it um, so that you don't get just as was mentioned right now, you know, somebody who faked it just to be able to get through that three, four, maybe five day, uh, selection, uh, um, uh, process. Hey, and for real quick, for those that are listening, I would, I really would recommend, I can't recommend higher, high enough, the unlimited runs or the unknown runs. What I mean by that is you do a run with, with the people who are going through selection and they don't know how long it is. Um, it's a real mind screw. And what you see is you see real like people will quit or they'll not give their all. Um, and then when they find out how far that run really was, you'll see their shoulders. I, I've seen it, you know, where 
I tell them we're leaving. It's going to be, you know, forever. And it's only really half a mile. And we go up and around a bend and I tell them it's over. And in the lose, the guys that are way back, their shoulders sag because they were saving something. But those unknown distances are, it's a great, it really tells you about people. I really believe in those. If you have time to do it, do it. Nice. I think, I think that's a great point. I mean, I suck at running, so I hated runs regardless. Anything over 30 meters was way too long for me. Um, but to, to Nir's point there, I think, I mean, that's it. Here's another question. I mean, we talk about qualifications. We talk about selection. Um, sometimes, and I don't want to say all the time, but sometimes when an agency gets somebody past the selection phase, they say, okay, you're part of the team. And now it's like they hold on to them. Um where in fact, you know, like, like Nira saying, you start going through the, your, your qualification phase or maybe they're weeks in, months in. And is there a point where you need to be like, we need to cut this guy loose because we've made a mistake? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's where your probationary periods are. You've got whatever you establish as a probationary period. If they can't, if they can't do what you need them to do, you got to let them go. Um, and again, you deal with those midsize or smaller agencies that are, are you know, part-time teams and they've got patrol or detective responsibilities. If they can't maintain both of those, you got to let them go. Um, you, you see too much, you see a lot of conflict between patrol and SWAT as is. Um, and if, if they're not packing the gear in one area, Sorry. I think, um, you know, you got really three phases to this game. You've got selection, qualification, and then you got operational. And people can be vastly different, you know, at any one of those phases. They can shine through selection and, uh, you know, not make it through Q course. They can shine through selection and Q course, but then they get out into the real world um, where things are obviously different. And they just don't cut it. They just can't um, can't uh, get the uh, the game on. They uh, they fall apart. They uh, you know all kinds of examples. But um, you got to be able to have that um, that lens on everybody on the entire uh, from from the you know uh, selection candidate to the recruit going through Q course to um, once they make it onto the uh, to the teams you got to keep them under a microscope and make sure that there's congruency in their very core, you know, all through all of those, uh, those phases. Well, I, and I would always ask, you know, Adam, how, how do you, how do you do that? How, how on this whole thing is about accountability, right? This, I mean, you, you can peel this whole thing down to what we do and it is about being accountable. It's about being accountable, first of all, to yourself, and then to your teammates and then to the citizens you're, you're serving, but you have to be accountable, right? Because this is the ultimate form of accountability. If you do poorly in our job, you don't come home, right? That's what draws a lot of us to this world is that it's the ultimate form of accountability. So if you have somebody on a team who doesn't meet the standard and you don't hold them accountable, well, then what are you doing? How do you have any credibility? Right. To me, your morale is going to go through the crapper real quick and it's not worth it. You got to let them go. And I've been on a team. I was very fortunate. I was on a team where we were staffed for 12 and I think we ran with eight or nine because that's all he could find that we could pass his test. And I loved him for it. Um, and we just used locals, you know, to, to do the perimeter for us. 
Um, and, and to me, because he was all about accountability. So to me, that that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think one thing is important that the, uh, you know, we talk about like a probationary period for a new, uh, you know, somebody, a new operator on the team. But, you know, it's very hard, especially a collateral teams, you know, I hate to throw the evaluation word out there, but it's very hard uh, on these collateral teams to, to, to really do an assessment of each individual operator, the team leaders, even the commander at any uh, one point. And, you know, and we did it once. It was very hard uh, to do. And I wish to say that we would we did it more. But, you know, we actually uh, the team got together and they also they kind of want to do a, a self-assessment and then have, you know, the team leaders kind of meet with them. And, you know, uh, it was actually a pretty good uh, at that moment. Uh, it was pretty, and with that team, it was pretty good as far as, you know, you saw some guys, uh, it was interesting, you know, they're pretty hard on themselves and it was an opportunity to say, Hey, no, you're doing this right. And, and, you know, so go, go forth with confidence. And then with other people, um, it gave you a snapshot of kind of where their head was at and where they thought about what was important and, and we're able to create a good discussion. Um, and I think whether whether that's a formal assessment process or something, you need to like kind of how we do it now is, you know, the teams, the team leaders and then the assistant team leaders have a very small span of control. That's kind of looking through that and giving that that feedback and the assessment, because, you know, you can have somebody that's a very good operator and then and life circumstances change and their head's not in the game anymore. And um, and you've got to have that that process in play um, to, to look at them and have those honest conversations with them. And especially for like a senior operator that all of a sudden, uh, you know, who knows what's going on, but, but it's uh, their body's breaking down or maybe there's a home life structure and, and these call outs are wearing on them and they're just not in the game. And, you know, you, you've got to look at, at whether or not uh, they're, they're the right person and the right fit at that, at that moment in time. And maybe you have to excuse them from the team, which is a hard thing to do if, if somebody's uh, been on there for a while but with that, I would say uh, we've had I've had to remove a few people from our team. And the one thing is, is hopefully you're doing that in a manner that it's no surprise to them that, that they've been they've had these conversations and they've had these uh, this opportunity. And, and 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 most actually, when I say I've had to remove most most of them had have kind of wrung out. They realize that, you know what, man? Uh, yeah, it's time for me to move on. And that's uh, I think that's a healthy thing for a team um, and, and whatever, whether it's a formal process or it's just a continual informal process, it's something that needs to be in play. I really like the idea of giving that guy an advisor job, uh, Dan, when you're talking about, you know, the, the kind of he's a little bit older and he can't do it anymore, but he's got a lot of years, a lot of a lot of hits. Um, offer him like a senior advisor to the SWAT team role. Um, so it, he still has dignity, you know, and, uh, and he can still contribute instead of just kind of feeling like it was all for nothing. Uh, I don't know. I like doing that. Yeah. We called it a mentor program, a mentorship. So you had your mentor and her protege. Uh, we did it with new members coming on the team and we did it with new roles. So if I had a new breacher, uh, that came on, he would be my protege and it was my responsibility to get him up to speed um, get him squared away on his breaching logs, make sure that he understood how it's done, why it's done, maintained it, those kind of things. Um, but that that whole concept of that mentor-protege relationship. Hey, Lon, I'm going to – is it cool if I share that list of books that you just posted in the – Yeah, uh, that's just uh, real quick. You know, yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, I'll post it to the – so everybody who's on here will see it. Um, oh, how would I leave off the gift of fear? Hey. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, I got a bunch of them here. Um, yeah, James sent me a bunch of them. Um, 
here's a here's an interesting question, and this has come up on the podcast a few times, and we've talked about it before, but I want to get your guys' opinion on this. Um, I, I mean, maybe it's more specific to the United States, but I don't think so. But I mean, since 2001, I mean, there we've most of the countries around the world, Commonwealth and the United States, of course, have been involved with um, military actions, right? Uh, we've had this we've had this time time frame where now we have such an experienced military and we have people that are leaving the military and finding jobs on the civilian side of things and a lot of them transition to law enforcement um the conversation that we've had on the show before is when we talk about selection of personnel and you have somebody coming into your police force and say they've been on a tier one team or maybe they've been maybe they've been a breacher for the last 15 years operationally and they've spent half or more of that time in the sandbox and now they're coming in as a new officer should agencies be saying listen sorry we have a mandatory five-year minimum you got to go through patrol you got to go through this that and whatever or should agencies be saying listen we should acknowledge the special skill set that this person has and hand select them for a tactical team I can, I can just tell you what we did in the FBI. Um, I don't know how the local guys feel about it, but the FBI did a program, still have it. It's called the Tactical Recruiting Program. And, uh, you know, if, if you're a Tier 1 operator, you can join the FBI and you get a you know straight shot into the hostage rescue team selection program, which I think is, is, is a really, really smart thing to do. Um, not to say that, the, you know, this Navy SEAL or Ranger can't benefit from being a, an FBI agent for a little while, but, you know, uh, get them, get them to the team where they can make, you know, the, the biggest, you know, the biggest uh, impact immediately. Uh, and I, and I, I thought it, I still think it's a great program. Uh, and, and those guys don't stay in HRT forever. They end up going to a field office and being a case agent and probably get on the local team there. But uh, yeah, for us, we had a really, really good, and, and still do have a really good um, program for that. Yeah, for most of your municipal agencies, you're going to have to make it through your probationary period as an officer, which is typically a year. Um, and then a full-time team, I could see fast-tracking people, um, but you know, your smaller mid-level teams are not full-time teams. Uh, they're going to have to be able to make it through their probationary period on patrol, take care of that before they can even test for a specialty. Um, I, I can tell you from my own personal experience that typically those folks um, are still the most humble and have no problem going through those processes. The guy that I went through SWAT school with, my first SWAT school, um, I ended up going with him. He was a, a Marine Corps sniper instructor out of Lejeune. And, and just the most humble, willing to do whatever it took, you know, so I, I don't think that, that they're going to oppose it, uh, but I think it just depends. If you've got a full-time team, I could see it, but part-time teams, I don't think it's going to happen. I agree. The, uh, the world of uh, military and civilian policing, you know, there are similarities, sure, but there's also a lot of differences and there's different liabilities and different uh, things that you answer to and, uh, you know, different ways that you have to think and uh, to transition from, you know, tactical environment from the military into another tactical environment in civilian policing. 
from a tactical standpoint, um, yeah, it's like, you know, just going to uh, to a new home and everything is uh, the same to the most part. But in the world of civilian policing, you've got the civilian policing aspect to it. Um, and, um, you know, there's, uh, there's got to be a balance there of, uh, of an operator who is still very much plugged in and attuned to the necessities and the criteria and scrutiny that, you know, you, uh, you fall under as a civilian uh, police officer um, doing something that you might do the same way in the military, but um, there's different um, parameters of allotment for what you might do in the military that may be scrutinized differently in the world of, uh, you know, civilian policing. So it's kind of a balancing point that you got to look at there. I don't know. Um, this is kind of jumping back. One of the questions came up uh, as far as um, does your city even need a team? Um, you know, you know, for years, I, I was 12 years on with my agency. We didn't have a team. Um, and and I think the only reason uh, that I felt like, all right, because, you know, 100 sworn department, um, you know, the only reason we really needed a team was because we were we were facing some some pretty decent incidents, some very uh, high risk incidents. And um, we'll call it politics between the, the only jurisdiction that had a SWAT team uh, in my agency didn't get along. So what would happen is you'd have these high risk situations that would unfold and the higher ups say, yeah, no, we're not using their team. And so it really kicked it down to a more uh, patrol level, winding up doing some things. And there's a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> I was telling Adam, or, you know, before the show that, you know, there's a, as a detective, there's a couple of times we did things and I'm like, man, we're, we're going to get ourselves killed uh, by doing it this way. Uh, we've, we've got to do something better. Um, and so if you're, you're somewhere out there and you're kind of in that situation, you're, you, you want to be on a team and you'd like to propose a team. Um, you really got to look at an honest, uh, you know, for me, it was a pretty simple decision. I, I wanted to be on a team. I almost jumped ship to go to another agency to, to try to get on a team. But, but the reality is, is, had to look at it. And I really, I didn't propose the idea of establishing a team until we, one, had leadership that was kind of open to the idea. Otherwise, you're banging your head against the wall. And then two, really looking at what my jurisdiction was facing and was there the need for it. And and uh, and I was able to, to kind of win that argument by having a very, um, you know, detailed uh, evidence kind of like, hey, these are the things that we're dealing with. And I'm not saying that we're, we're not trained, but but this really takes a little bit more specialty. And so that's what brought uh, my team forward. I've seen uh, other jurisdictions that are very, very small, and it's not always the small ones, but, you know, uh, not that any jurisdictions may vary, but it is, you know, they're patrolling Mayberry, and yet they, they form a team, which becomes a hardship uh, for training and getting their staff. And so you've got to ask yourself, um, is it really necessary? Um, and so I guess that's all I really got to say on that, but I think it's important for those people that may be serving a jurisdiction that doesn't have a team and they want a team. Um, it, it's a hard press to get one implemented. You've, you've got to strike while the iron's hot. If there's some crisis that have ha has happened and it shows that there's your neighboring supporting LAD agency that you would rely on uh, couldn't come through for whatever reason, then maybe that's the time to, to propose it. Um, but if you're barring those things and it's just to have a team for the sake of the have a team uh, that that may be more of a challenge for you in the long run, as far as getting the training time, making sure that you have adequate men and women. Um, you know, you talk about 
Uh, Lowell, you talked about the one-year probation. They at least have to be up. I agree in our agency, they have to be up. You know, I'd honestly like somebody that's got a little bit more even patrol experience, a little bit more nuance. But we've hit a point uh, at my agency where uh, due to, you know, turnover, don't have that luxury. So I've got, uh, you know, good men and women that are that are up and coming. And it's like, all right, man, when, <laughs> when they get off probation, maybe we put the hook into them uh, and, and start recruiting them a little bit earlier than we would have uh, before. Um, and we even had to at one point, I think we had a, a three year policy in our um in our policy, you had to be on three years before you could even apply for the team. And we did have to change that at one point because uh, we were starting to run out. And, and, and it's not that we were desperate just to accept anybody. It's just that we saw that, hey, you know, we had a couple laterals that, hey, they just got off probation, but um, they've got they've got the chops to do this. Yeah, I mean, look at what you need the team to do. Um, NTOA's guidelines actually some great resource for agencies if they're looking at trying to stand a team up, you know, they've got everything from, you know, a tier one, tier two to tactical response team to perimeter control teams. And, and they give you, you know, ideals for, for training time, for how many time you know, training each month, how often each year. Um, it's another great resource that agencies can use. And then with, depending upon what that particular tier, that particular section is, what your capabilities should be, right? I mean, if if you're expected to be doing hostage rescue, you better be putting some serious time in. Um, if you think that you're going to be able to run with, you know, one training day a, a month and be successful on hostage rescue, that's 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 probably not going to work out in your favor. Yeah, everybody, uh, you know, nobody needs a team until they need a team. That's kind of uh, one of the issues as well is a lot of all the stuff that we see going on today, um, the really bad incidents. I mean, they happen in uh, places that you never would expect them to happen uh, outside of all the conventional, the norm, you know, hitting warrants, uh, door kicks uh, on, a, on a regular routine basis for drugs and what have you. Um, but, uh, you know, there's also the issue of, of part-time teams. I mean, where does that fall into play? You know, if an agency is going to go the lengths of, having a part-time team that, um, you know, I would suggest that if you've got a part-time team, you probably are also going to have the same limitations and hindrances of kind of adhering to X amount of training uh, per month. Um, and um, sometimes your team is available, sometimes team's off duty. Um, so it puts you kind of in that same predicament. Um, you know, one of the things that I kind of like is, and, I think most of these problems are logistical and scheduling and budgetary. Um, and needless to say that the bigger cities, the bigger uh, the counties, the bigger departments and agencies, they really you know don't have issues with answering that. A lot of all the problems, obviously, that we see are within the small, maybe mid-sized agencies. Um, you know, one of the things that I like is uh, I think that when we talk about a lot of the skills of your uniform you know, general patrol officer and your your tactical officer, with the exception of mandates, with the exception of the uh, um, the tasks that they perform, there's a necessity for these skills on, on both ends. Um, you know, your general patrol, they're the ones that get into the worst situations. They're the ones that, um, that get into the more complex and the more dangerous situations. They're the ones that are in these predicaments without 
six, eight, 10, 12 other officers, you know, on their back and the equipment and the training. Um, and in the tactical world, yeah, there's bad stuff that happens. You know, we go into to bad situations, but we do it in a very controlled fashion whenever we can. Um, you know, in the tactical world, you're always generally you are in a better disposition. Um, one of the things that I think is that, you know, capabilities should be raised as far as possible on on all fronts. And I think that even your general patrol officer, uh, aside from the academy and all the uh, regular, you know, policing tactics training that they get, I think that every general patrol, uniform patrol officer should be a use of force instructor and should go through uh, basic SWAT school. Um, I think that that, uh, you know, right away kind of compensates for the fact that they're going to be in a lot of bad predicaments uh, without the resources of attack team. It's going to elevate their capability, their initiative, you know, um, um, and capability of being able to to remedy all these uh, problematic situations. But in the worst case scenario, if you are an agency that really can't put together the justification for putting together a team, at least you have a, um, you know, uh, a very broad pool of being able to reach into those um, tactical capabilities in a worst case scenario if something should happen. If I can jump out on one thing that you hit on, um, you know, one of the things that you could really do, especially I think every jurisdiction should do this, but I understand larger agencies, but, but the midsize to the smaller agencies, if you want to make your SWAT team valuable, then, um, then, then share your knowledge continually, uh, train, train all your patrol folks. Not that you're, you know, I mean, some aspects you have to be careful with that, but, but make yourself valuable to the department. That was one of the, uh, the arguments that I had with the department is like, Hey, it's not just, uh, you know, it's not like, hey, uh, we're SWAT and you're not. So stay out of, you know, we, we've got the secret sauce over here. It's really we're going to create a cadre that's training, learning and developing. And then they're going to infuse that knowledge throughout all the patrol folks and be doing roll call trainings and back parking lot stuff to kind of make everybody better. And, uh, and if you do that, uh, it it just it just adds even more value. So if you're not getting the missions that you need, uh, the administration's looking at that and going, hey, it, it, they're still bringing the whole training level of this department better to respond for anything. Because as you all, the panel hit on, you know, it's, it's patrol that's going to take the hit, um, whether it's a barricade, hostage, active shoot, whatever, they're going to take the hit initially. And, uh, you know, hopefully you have some operators that are out there that can kind of help coordinate uh, some small team movements. But uh, infusing that knowledge throughout your entire agency and not just holding it close to the vest um, is, is, is so uh, paramount, I think, to the, for the success of the whole, of the whole agency. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's an interesting question here. Um, and I kind of posted it in our, our private chat there about, um, FEMA and, um, I'll put it up here, uh, during your emergencies that have been ranked under HERA, um, which I believe, is um let me see here i just searched this up hazard identification and risk assessment um who takes the lead on site separate of eoc command between law enforcement and fema um so i think i mean james i mean you from a federal side of things you may have a little bit of insight on this but um maybe 
in U.S. emergencies, I mean, between FEMA and law enforcement, who really takes the lead on those? Well, FEMA will have the the ultimate lead with regards to coordination of resources, federal response, but they always do that with the coordination of the governor and the state emergency managers. Every state has emergency management group, uh, and and more than likely they'll be leading that that effort. Now, if this hazard is deemed to be man-made nefarious, like criminal or terrorist-related, then obviously the FBI is going to get involved. And if it's terrorism, they're going to be taking the lead. Uh, FEMA will support the cleanup efforts or, or whatever is needed in that respect. But the Bureau will do the investigation. Um, I hope that answers that gentleman's question. Yeah, I was like, I posed it because I said, I don't know what I, I it's outside of my wheelhouse. So I, <laughs> I had no idea what it was. That was um, a, good a really good one. Here's, here's a question. Is when we talk about different types of teams, I mean, we're, we're talking critical incident response teams, but I mean, uh, like with the FBI, for example, you have your HRT team and your SWAT team. What's the fundamental difference between the two? And I mean, is it, is it very drastic or is it, or is it more subtle? I think it's drastic. Um, every FBI field office, there's 56 of them. They all have a SWAT team. And those are agents who are dual-hatted, if you will, very similar to the local situation we've been talking about, where you have a patrol officer who's also on the SWAT team. But at the federal level, you have an FBI agent who's working cases. Like I was working uh, drugs, and then I ended up working terrorism. But I maintained, you know, I was on the SWAT team. It's a collateral duty that you volunteer to be on. Uh, HRT is a full-time team that does nothing but tactics. That is their life. Um, they're supported very, very well. Uh, <laughs> air assets, um, boat assets, you name it, they've got it. Um, but they're full-time. That, that, and they handle any, they're the, you know, they are the preeminent uh, tier one entity for the U.S. response to, to anything. Um yeah, there. I think there's a significant difference between them and and, and say a, a a local FBI SWAT team. Not to say the local FBI SWAT teams aren't very very good, but they just don't get the training uh, at that level that that HRT does because that's all they do. That's their sole assignment. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, Nir, I'd, I'd I'd kind of pose a question to you too. I mean, you you specialize in the hostage hostage rescue stuff, so I mean. When you talk training differences, what is the, I mean, fundamentally, what's the difference when you're training for hostage rescue versus any of the other tasks? Sure. So um, uh, in general, there's uh, three levels of the tactical world. You've got uh, containment tactical and HRT. Um, what defines, you know, what you fall in will depend on, uh, there's, uh, there's a number of, uh, of criteria, um, but it'll depend on size of your team, if it's full-time or part-time, um, the um, qualifications that the team holds, uh, the amount of training on a monthly basis that the team uh, goes through. Those are kind of the main um, ingredients to defining it. And if we talk about, um, you know, hostage rescue, um, that's obviously the top of the top because the um, uh the necessity for all the variables and the elements that you require are, um, uh, you know, just, just very expansive. The, um, the tactical capability is, you know, needless to say, um, you, you, you gotta be 
spot on with everything that uh, that is being implemented. And everybody has to uh, to do the right things and uh, be proficient and effective at uh, at their task. There's just no no compromise on it. Um, if you have a barricaded uh, subject, for example, no hostages, you know, you can always kind of pull back out of the situation if things don't work out well. But when you're getting into the realm of innocent people's uh, lives being an imminent uh, threat of death or grievous bodily harm, and, you know, either that begins, is initiated by the threat, or can uh, be triggered, no pun intended, by, you know, uh, the team breaching and, and moving in, um, there's no room for error. The margin of error is is so small, and the magnitude for consequences are very great. So, um, you know, when it comes to HRT, you're talking about a dedicated team whose primary mandate is hostage rescue, and that mandate is supported by ensuring that um, their capabilities are always top notch. That there is a tremendous amount of training and resources that uh, that goes into their uh, their capabilities uh, in training and operationally. Um, there's no compromise. They are always able to deploy within uh, the the uh, the call out of the mandate. You know, generally speaking, these days, and there's a lot of Factors that will come in to to um, you know uh, uh, answer why this occurs, but in, in in general, when when you've got an HRT team that gets deployed, you're talking about several hours before the call comes in. Everything is rounded up, initial briefing. Um, they load all the equipment, uh, whether it's by vehicle, by helicopter, by whatever modality they're arriving. They get on scene, they unfold their uh, the command post, and everybody starts getting into play. Um, you know, you can have sometimes uh, three, maybe four hours before um, a team can get boots on the ground. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the defining factor there. Um, they can do everything that a tactical team does, but their focus is on hostage rescue and the caliber of their capabilities is always kept at a, uh, the highest standard possible for that worst case scenario of, uh, of a hostage situation. Hey, Adam. Yeah, go ahead. I wanted to jump in real quick to kind of help the listeners maybe even understand, um, you know, like we had a great case uh, the Bureau did in Alabama years ago where, you know, this this kid was taken off a school bus by some nut job and the guy took him and he uh, put him down in like a well, but it was actually a bunker that he had designed. And, um, that initially starts out like they all do, right? The local policeman takes the report. Holy crap, this is a big deal. Contacts the FBI office because it's a kidnapping. And then the Bureau responds. But while this is going on, they're still creating a plan for if you know this thing goes south right now, what are we going to do? So when the FBI gets there, they get their local FBI SWAT team in Alabama spooled up. They deploy out there. They're not, you know, sitting on their bags like HRT is, but they, you know, got there very quickly. And, and the very first thing they're coming up with is, you know, what's the situation and uh, what is our plan? If this thing goes, you know, nuclear and he, you know, does something stupid, we have to have a plan to get in there. Obviously, we may not have the right tools, um, but we're going to figure it out, right? We have to have a plan if, if all shit goes wrong. Well, they get into this thing and they realize, man, this is a very difficult uh, bunker that he's designed. We may need to explosively breach the, he had created like this uh, 
webbing across the front. It was like bike chains. Think of a bike chains going across like in a webbing uh, with locks on it. You'd have to breach that. And so HRT has those types of capabilities. So Quantico was called. HRT was spooled up. They have to be able to respond. They've got a window. I don't think I can talk about it online, but it's relatively quick. And they got a team down there. And they're immediately coming up with a plan, which would be, you know, an emergency breach. Um, and that's what they ended up having to do. And, and there are some two heroes that jumped in there under an immense fire. They were taking rounds. They jumped down into this you know, pit and they saved this kid and shoot the guy. Um, and it, I mean, this is real hero stuff. Uh, hopefully they write a book about it. But those guys, I mean, that's what they that's what they do. And, and I'm just you know, really, really thankful that we have them. That's awesome. Just to uh, to throw in, um, I think some points that I kind of uh, um, uh, left out. Um, the uh, world of hostage rescue, as I said, it's very complex. You know, you've got a multitude of all of these factors and resources that have to come together for one moment in time that um, you know lasts a few minutes, and everything has to be pristine. So. One of the other separating factors between HRT and, and tactical is the amount of, um, of specialized taskings that are required for HRT, right? So it's not a matter of nice to have different, uh, different things like, uh, like breachers, hot, cold breachers, explosives, dogs, snipers. These are all things that when the breach command is given, uh, the go command is given, you have to make sure that you can get to that um, point zero to to where the uh, the terrorists and the hostages are as quickly as possible and prevent loss of innocent lives. So you've got all of those specialized skills that have to be a component of the whole HRT package from assaulters, snipers, dogs, um, hot, cold breaching, repelling, um, you know, uh, those are kind of the uh, the uh, the main ones. And uh, and then ultimately as well, um, you know, to hit a house, kick in a door and hit a house to go and arrest a guy wanted on a warrant, you can get away with, you know, a team of, of eight to 10 um, officers. But if you're talking about hostage rescue, where first of all, at the core, you have to be able to hit that scenario, the main, uh, the main point in that whole um, <clears throat> scenario from a 360 degree um, uh, approach. And you're talking about, you know, usually potentially um, large scale uh, uh, structures, um, whether it's a big house, whether it's buildings, um, you have to have numbers. You know, um, uh, you're not going to get away with a 10 or 20 man uh, uh, team being able to go into a school environment, for example, and effectively carry out a hostage rescue. You're going to need at least, you know. 50, 60 um, um, officers involved or operators involved in that uh, in that um, uh, dynamic. Um, so it's very calculated. You know, the, the, the game of hostage rescue is to look at the problem and bring on board all the resources that are required to affect the most desirable end result. In the tactical world, we have the resources and how do we make do with the resources for the problem that, um, that were the tasks that were, uh, that were assigned? Yeah, it's great. Does anybody have any more points on the HRT side? Um, Lon brought up a question or a, a topic, a talking point here about um, the anti-SWAT or the militarization of law enforcement debate. 
um, and how that comes up in, in politics and, and with everything else. So, Lon, maybe I'll let you start off with that one and then we can get into it. Yeah, I mean, we're really talking about, I think the question is framed wrong for the most part from society coming towards law enforcement. There's an assumption, the militarization, what you're seeing is a borrowing of equipment that pans out that works or that was available that could be reused to be successful in specific situations. Um, it's not like we're trying to turn the entire law enforcement of, uh, of the United States into a SWAT team. And it's not that a SWAT team isn't a purpose-driven, valuable asset. What you see is, unfortunately, the media, and I, you know, it's easy to blame them, but it's, let's face it, uh, the media, the, the movies that, that portray um, what we do in a way that's not accurate, it's not appropriate, it's, it's usually over the top. Um, and, and it's hard to un- get people to unlearn that. Uh, it's hard to change their thought process and their patterns when that is their only understanding. Um, and it's, it's completely wrong. So I think that you counter it by being very proactive. Um, you know, you have your SWAT team at um, public events to interact with people in a, in a way, way ahead of time. You know, you, you build that good rapport. Um, you know, you have them at all those, the events where people can ask questions of the operators. They can see the equipment and, you know, you secure what you need to and they can see what your ar- armored vehicles are looking like. Um, you have, I think you have to get on the front end of that to, to gain that goodwill with your community. Um, because if you can't get that goodwill, it's going to be harder to get what you need. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to fight, uh, if you are in a bad standing, um, and you have to really evaluate to some degree, even the language that you use to some of your programs. Um, you know, a couple of quick examples, just because of, of emotions that get tied into stuff. We wanted a, uh, sniper option that could counter our armor in case our armor got hijacked. Um, so we started down the path of looking at a 50 cal uh, to be able to penetrate if necessary. Well, our city council flipped out, right? 50 caliber. Oh my God, it's a, it's a, you know, that's a military gun and blah, 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 blah. blah. So I sent the research down a 338 Lapua round, which ballistically, if you want to, you know, lay those things out. Um, but it doesn't sound like a 50 cal, right? So 338 Lapua to, to the folks that are passing and agreeing to make these programs happen. It doesn't, it doesn't sound as, as extreme. Uh, we, you know, I, I started our, our explosive breach program, but I didn't call it an explosive breach program. I called it high energy breaching because I didn't use the word explosives because people get all the attachments to that and they freak out. So it was, high energy breaching. Um, so I, we have to look at how our, our profile, how our, our presence, how our, our, our reputation uh, is actually being presented to the community. And I think it's important that we do our best to protect it and, and shape it in a positive light well before we actually need it. Um, and as you get more and more anti-cop mentality, I think it's more important that we get on the front end of it. And we do even more right now to make sure that people understand that we're there to save lives. That's, that's our mission. We want to save lives. We want to reduce risk. We want to do everything that we can, uh, when possible to, to, to push that forward. Um, and, and 
we humanize our SWAT operators by having them interact with the public at large. Um, I think those are critical aspects to make sure we, we, we maintain and keep support that we need. Because once we ha- don't have that support, your program's gone. It's a tough battle. I agree with you. Well, and you're only good as your last op sometimes. Right. Um, as far as humanizing the, the teams, I mean, it was something interesting just in my personal experience here um, in, in Winnipeg, in Manitoba, because when the NHL playoffs kick off, um, when the Jets make the playoffs, we have these whiteout parties and they fill downtown with tens of thousands of people. Um, and one of the things they've done every year is they obviously bring in the, the police department and the SWAT teams. And at every entrance, um, there's members completely tacked out. Um, but they do a fantastic job in engaging the crowd. They wear Jets hats or, or different types of hats or whatever, but they're always engaging and they're, it's, they kind of take that militaristic view away from the general public. When they're shaking hands, high-fiving people, yeah, sure, you got, you're strapped, but people see the human. They don't see the gear, um, which I think is really important. So that's kind of a, just an example to what you were speaking about there. And New York does that. New York does a great job of, you know, ESU, they'll do, you know, they'll do corners and, and they'll jump out and be on a corner for a while or they'll be at Madison Square Garden. And, and their uniforms aren't nearly as different as, say, a, a SWAT team that you would see. Um, you know, for the by and large, the NYPD ESU uniform looks a lot like an NYPD uniform um, versus, you know, maybe some uh, tacked out. Uh, flight suit or tiger stripes. I mean, I've seen it all. Um, I, I don't think we do ourselves any favors when we're creating that mystique on the teams, you know, where we're trying to look like some tier one operator from Afghanistan. It, it, you know, that you're projecting an image. I'm not saying it's a bad image. I'm just telling you, you're projecting an image. And sometimes that doesn't help you. Like the Winnipeg scenario, that to me projects an image that you want for a policing role. Um, when you're projecting other images, you know, you're not doing yourself any favors. And I think a lot of times guys forget about the fact that the people they're upsetting are, are the same people that are sitting on a jury. Um, and, and we should never forget that. Yeah, or voting to maintain your funding or cut your funding. Um, I mean, those are all all valid considerations. That That image is critical. And, you know, you do have too many people that, that can't even explain the whys, you know, well, you're wearing a, a all gray uniform. Well, why? Or all OD green, you know, it's like, well, that's military. Well, hold on. Um, I have a uniform that fits the pattern of the brush in my environment here in Arizona so that it gives me an advantage. So that if I have to get to a specific spot, I'm less likely to be seen and less likely to be a target. And in an urban environment, I wear this, um, specifically because, you know, dusk and dawn, it blends into the environment. So I'm less likely to be a target, less likely to have, you know, bullets coming at me. But we've got to train our operators or, or to be able to explain it and explain it in a way that the public understands it and it's not intimidating. Um, you know, and, and cops can have, let's face it, not only gallows humor, but just crass humor. And, and we've got to keep a you know, lid on that. Because it's said to the wrong people, it's going to come across very on, un, un, you know, uncaring, and and it's not going to do your your image, your mission, uh, of portraying yourself as a viable, 
a viable member of the community. And that's, that's, I think that's really what it boils down to, that those SWAT members are a member of the community. They're there to help protect the community, but you've got to make sure to carry that mission forward uh, and that, that language forward. And if you can't, man, you got to work on those skills. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, being the dude from California, uh, <laughs> there's a, this is a big topic. I mean, um, you can still search uh, what the battle we had to fight uh, to, to acquire our tank, our Bearcat, right? And it's still a continual, um, every use is scrutinized. Believe me, I, in fact, today, the Bearcat had to go to the radio shop to get the radio channels. And I had to notify my chief so that way uh, people weren't calling, why is the tank rolling through town? So so really, the, the politics of it uh, do come into play. Um, I, I think, you know, you're getting into uniforms and stuff too. And I think there has to be a why to your equipment. It's, you know, it's funny, it's, it's, uh, and I don't, I don't want to get into the weeds on the, on equipment, but you know, like if you've got this huge boot dagger, that's half sticking out of your belt, like, you know, um, you, you gotta have, you gotta have a reasonable answer as to the why, um, you know, it, it may be a, a self-defense weapon and, and, and whatever it is, but, but you also got to remember um, when you're, when you're out there, this equipment you're wearing, people are scrutinizing. And, and if you got something, You've got to have a reason a reason why you have that piece of equipment and how that's uh, helping you uh, protect yourself, protect your team versus it's just it just looks really cool. Um, and I think we could probably go on and on about equipment because everything's out there. If it's black and Molly or camo, it, you know, uh, Velcro. don't forget it has to have Velcro. Yeah, Velcro. I mean, you know, and so that that's a, just another whole thing. And from you know, from our aspect, yeah, you know, the, the politics, it's, it's also like, I, I like talking about the external politics and this very real issue of, of um, you know, the militarization of police, because my team lives and breathes it every day, uh, the scrutiny that we're <laughs> under here. I'm not saying that other places aren't, but here in the Bay Area of California, definitely. Um, and so, uh, so we are truly as good as every mission. We have to have a reason why for actions or equipment that we purchase. Um, but there's also politics that we haven't talked about, and that's your internal politics uh, of your own jurisdiction. And what do I mean by that? Like I was a pretty young uh, team leader, but I wanted to get I wanted to get I was doing most of the planning for our, our ops. And so I was like, hey, I'm going to take this opportunity to find out what is my administration good with. And I remember, uh, you know, gave them a scenario, was invited to a management meeting, gave them a scenario of this uh like a domestic violence with shots fired. She stumbles out the front and they take a couple shots at the first incoming units, turns into this big barricade. And I was kind of testing to see at what point would my administration at that time allow us to deploy gas into the place? Cause we're thinking like, Hey, you know, what's it going to take? Uh, because I was pretty good with like, Hey, we're going to negotiate for a little bit and then we're going to try to do some aerial denial. And then, Really, where my tipping point is, you know, you start getting in like a 12 hour operational period, your team starts really getting smoked. And are you going to have to change out teams? You may have to engage in some. So I was just trying to get the feelers. And uh, I learned something very quickly that day is my chief was not good with gas. Like it's almost would have to be an additional shots fired and some emergency deployment. But as far as as far as driving the person out or creating, uh, you know, a denial and trying to drive them to us or whatever, that was completely off the table. So, you know, we can complain about that and you can say, oh, you know, that's that's horrible. But that was the reality. And knowing that reality of the internals, like what's going to be OK is what uh, I think that's important. That's important for us to, to for every team uh, to know. 
Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there's ways that you do that. Um, you know, education is a component of that. One of the things that we would always do is any type of new member or that got into our chain of command. So you know, if it was a new lieutenant or new commander, um, we would always invite them out. And then if you were on the team, if you were part of the decision-making process, we would put you in a position where you get to experience a gun port charge. So IV bag, a little bit of debt cord, running a, a high gun port, pretty damn close. I mean, you're talking, you know, really low grain weight with the tamping of the water, you know, really safe charge. But people freak out when you say explosives, right? You talk about electricity or explosives and and, and everybody freaks out. It's like magic. Um, so we would put them literally, you know, where was the, there's, you know, the, the uh, safe distance is in some of those charges was six feet behind a shield. And we're detonating this charge, setting up the shield, get into a gun port position so that they could understand what we're really talking about, right? We're not talking about putting huge amounts of explosive and taking entire walls out on the you know, entire side of a house. We're talking about a very specific application. Same thing with gas, right? Educating people on, on how safe gas really truly can be, what it takes to hit you know, an unsafe environment. The original testing of unsafe, right? The lethal concentrations was on a hermetically sealed environment as opposed to a house that has leaks in it. And I think we have to educate up um, some regards, uh, probably in most situations, so they really know what our capabilities and what the, the liabilities are, as opposed to what they think they are. Absolutely. There's, I mean, we're, we're coming for about 15 minutes left here. Um, so for those of those of you who have been on here that have uh, submitted your emails to me, I'm going to send you them back. We're going to get you access to that kind of stuff. Uh, for the summit. Um, but for the, the four of you guys, I mean, it's kind of an open, well, I'm going to give you 50 minutes, open season, uh, pick a topic. If there's something still on the top of your mind um, that you want to talk about. One thing that was interesting to me when I set this up was I, I knew because I had a couple guys, I've had about four or five negotiators that I've had talked with or on the podcast. And they were like, why don't you have a negotiator on this? And I was like, well, I obviously knew I was leaving a component out um, well, there you go. So Lon's, Lon's a train negotiator. So that's one topic that's really interesting. And for me, most mostly because, I mean, when we talk about the general public, um, there's things that come out in society, like on Netflix, like with the Waco series that just came out, that show a massive clash between negotiators and tactical teams. Um, and now I don't, I don't want to, we don't have to get into that whole thing. And James, I promise I won't ask you to go through it, but um, with, with situations like that, is there really a conflict between negotiators and tactical teams? Um, and, and if so, is that something that should be addressed and how do you do that? I, I think you have it. And at least what I've seen is it's a, it's a brotherly love more than anything else, you know, and I started in the negotiator side of the house before I even moved over to the tag team. Um, you know, we, on the team, we made fun of the negotiators who sat in their air conditioned trailer, ordered pizza um, and, you know, cold sodas as we're sitting in 115 degrees, um, you know, getting eaten alive by ants in somebody's backyard. Um, so, you know, there, there was always a little bit of that. But we always realized that they're both necessary and that we played off each other. There are times, don't get me wrong, where, you know, teams chomping at the bit and going, this dude isn't coming out. Let's just gas him. Let's, you know, let's put some heat on him. Let's do this. 
and negotiators, obviously I can get him out. I can get him out. I've got, I've, I've got a hook. I've got a hook. Right. So they have to have that mindset. And the team has the other mindset that we can get him out. We can take care of this. And I think that's a healthy tension, but in the middle is the commander who's got to balance those two out. Um, so I, I haven't seen a negative rivalry in a, in a lot of teams. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure it exists somewhere, at least with my experience, it's always been, like I said, it's kind of that, that brotherly love concept, tease each other, razz each other, train together. You know, we, we would force our negotiators to accept the fact that you might be talking a guy into a windowed position or an open position so that a sniper can take a shot. Um, you know, can, can you do that? Um, and you know, we would force, our SWAT team guys to sit there and be security for, you know, we would always say, well, never do a face-to-face negotiation. Yeah. I remember the commander saying that and literally two weeks later, we're doing a face-to-face negotiation and I'm running security for a negotiator who's got to be able to literally be sound uh, away. Um, Or I had a situation where I had to negotiate with somebody who's deaf visually. He had to see me. Um, So you know, you, you you get that rivalry. I don't think it's a negative. I think it, it, it could be a very positive aspect. One of the things we did, um, I mean, and I'm I'm with, you know, I'm with everybody on this one. I mean, I, I went to the FBI negotiator school and I hated it. Um, I mean, I, I got through it, but I hated it because, you know, it's just not my DNA. Most of us, our DNA, if we're in the SWAT community, it's speed, surprise, violence of action. We're not very patient, um, you know. It's just different, different kind of DNA, if you will. But the bureau, you know, HRT and the hostage, the negotiators are in the critical incident response group called CERG. They are housed together. They deploy together. They work together. Um, they're, I wouldn't say seamless, but they're, they're, there's not a whole lot of tension there. Um, but, I, you know, I, th- I think Lon's right. You're always going to have a little bit of that. <coughs> brotherly love type of a relationship because you know we just have different missions and, and i want to do my mission i want to get over with and, and they're perfectly happy to you know talk for days and, and you know i just i don't know how the rest of the guys feel about it but i don't think patience is one of my strong virtues i think i've gotten better at 50 but when i was in my 30s i wasn't very damn patient Yeah, I think um, that one of the uh, unique facets that I've seen is when negotiators are not a separate entity that are brought into the uh, to the dynamic of, you know, trying to uh, do their job in resolving it, um, but where the negotiators are actually um, an organic part of the hostage rescue uh, team. And so they have their job to do. They have their role that they wholeheartedly try to, uh, you know, to, um, uh, to, uh, uh, to, 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 to engage, which is to negotiate hopefully a peaceful resolution. But there is also a seamless transition of if the decision for whatever reason is made that, you know, the torch has to be transferred over to, uh, to tactical now, um, the negotiator, you know, can understand that and can start to use his or her, negotiation negotiator position to try to maybe leverage an opportunity to facilitate um uh you know the uh the tactical um initiation here um and uh that kind of seems to be a, a dynamic where 
uh, things work out, um, you know, fairly well. Not that I've ever seen any issues, but, um, you know, there's kind of that seamless um, transition of they try to do their job. And if it doesn't work out and things are going tactical, at least they're there to try to still facilitate a um, uh, an opportunity for for tactical to uh, to be able to initiate effectively. I think one of the biggest um, the challenges too, speaking from, uh, you know, again, a smaller municipality is the uh, lawn, you know, there's this constant like little, you know, good brotherly love uh, ribbing going on. But the reality is, is what we recognize is that we weren't really including them, um, you know, in our training or when we did have a training day, it was like, well, they were kind of off doing here and we were doing our thing. And then, then we'd have a scenario where we we're both doing it, but we'd be bo- off on both. And so, it took kind of a force of will to try to realize we're married in together. You know, earlier in the conversation, we were talking about strategy and being thinking and and, and thinking the, the successful outcomes. Well, it may not be as sexy, but if your negotiators can get into this person's head and they surrender with no problems, man, that's a win. Right. And as a SWAT guy, it's like, well, I'd rather go get the dude, but um, it, it's better. And so what we started doing is, Every operation now, high-risk search warrant, I don't care what it is, we have negotiators go. We just had a high-risk search warrant uh, this last Sunday. Same thing, we had negotiators there because you never know, shots fired, turns into a barricade, you can't call them out So, uh, and wait. Uh, so if they're truly going to be part of your team, they got to be part of your team. you got to include them in. And I'm not saying you have these everyday training days, every SWAT training day is a, is a H&T day, but, but you need to train with them more than not. Yeah, we were, they were a force multiplier. I mean, we worked together. Um, you know, if you needed a negotiator who, you know, who needed a little pressure put on the person, right? They, they, the whole idea was to get the hook that I'm your way out, man. That SWAT team's out there. I can't guarantee your safety. I'm your lifeline. Work with me. I can prompt, you know, I mean, that whole, that whole premise that I am your salvation and your way out once you can build that rapport and that relationship. And they get into that middle ground, man. You have a negotiator or a, a, an operator throw a couple of pebbles at a window and the guy starts freaking out a little bit. Like, look, I'm telling you, man, I am your way out. I can promise you safety, but you got to do what I tell you, you know, because I, I, I am. I, I'm, I'm here for you. Once that rapport is built, you start playing that, you know, some of those games. Um, you can get people to come out and, and you know, it, they have to be able to work in those cooperative elements to make stuff like that happen. Yeah. That'd be a whole nother round table. All the tips and tricks that, that uh, you guys can do to coerce and, and coax people out of a, <laughs> out of a barricaded house or something. That'd be an interesting conversation. Um, we're, we're wrapping up here. So what I want to do is I want to give everybody a quick chance to, to just let everybody kind of know where they want to get a hold of you. Um, I mean, if, They've been listening to this. Obviously, for the three of you guys, um, they're, you're going to be on the uh, International Law Enforcement Training Summit, so they're going to get a whole bunch of you on there. Uh, but other than that, maybe we'll just uh, I'll just start with Nir. Where can uh, where can people get a hold of you uh, to get more information from you if they want? Uh, LinkedIn and Facebook under my name. That's the uh, the easiest way. Perfect. We'll link that in uh, on the show notes for sure. Uh, James. Yeah, uh, LinkedIn and GavinDeBecker.com. If anyone listening is interested in maybe a, a new line of work or a new chapter in your life, we're, we're actively hiring. So uh, hit, hit me up. I love the recruiting pitch. Uh, Lon, go ahead. 
Yeah, um, I'm easy to get through LinkedIn or they can get me through the uh, virtual website. Perfect. And uh, I'll leave it with Dan. You're mute. You muted your mic, bud. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the whole show, the whole show, you had one job, one it's job. Okay, it's okay. It's at the end. It's at the end. You're fine. Hey, uh, so uh, Dan Flip on LinkedIn. Um, pretty easy to see my mug out there and know it's me. And then uh, SavageTrainingGroup.com. Uh, I'm also in there as one of their instructors. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you guys just hold on for a quick second as I uh, wrap this up here. So. Uh, thank you, everybody, who's been joining us here on the roundtable. Um, again, we had a fantastic discussion. Make sure you join us the last Thursday of each and every month at 6 p.m. Central Time for the next roundtable. Um, that's going to take place here in June, so we'll make sure to uh, send that information out to you. And then, again, make sure to check out the International Law Enforcement Training Summit, and we're going to be getting more information to you on that. So thanks so much for being here, and we'll see you next time on the roundtable. Stay safe. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the podcast. If you want to check out these instructors roundtables again, the last Thursday of each and every month at 6 p.m. Central Time, you can go to thebreakdown.ca forward slash IRT. And if you haven't already, check out the International Law Enforcement Training Summit taking place July 27th through 31st, 2020. It is free to attend and you can get that at ILETSummit.com. Thanks for being here with us on the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Until next time, stay safe.